This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Watch the left field deep. Bam going back, looking up. He will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back. Goal for Yelich. Cody Bellinger hits one out. He does. So he's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of A's Cast Live. We are here to entertain you for the next couple of hours to help be a distraction from all the craziness that's going around in our country and around the world. We have an unbelievable guest list for you today. We are going to start out today at 1.30, Jesse Rogers from ESPN and ESPN.com. He was already on Get Up this morning on ESPN. And really, ESPN, they've done a really good job covering, even though over the years they've dialed back their baseball coverage, they've done a really good job covering the game and this offseason and the game during this pandemic. So Jesse has written a couple articles we'll get into with him, and we think, you know, what's baseball going to look like? And we'll talk about that in a moment. Steve Phillips is a former general manager in Major League Baseball. He is going to join us at 2 o'clock. He's one of the GMs that's turned media guy. And, uh, you know, he leads it off every morning on Sirius XM, the MLB channel. And it's great that we have these guys, Dan Duquette, Jim Bowden, guys that used to run franchises now in the media. They give you a perspective that you don't get from ex-players and broadcasters. So he's going to be here at 2 o'clock. It's Wednesday, so that means it's a Ray Fossey day. We'll have Ray on for a half hour at 2.30. Then we're going to go down to North Carolina and talk to our guy, Scott Emerson, the pitching coach for your Oakland Athletics. And he gave up a hit. So Michael Jordan gets optioned from big league camp to minor league camp. And then Emo gives up his first base hit as he got optioned down. So we'll talk Michael Jordan with Scott Emerson. You're going to love it. And then really one of the smartest guys in baseball. Uh, went, went to Penn. He's an Ivy Leaguer, was a good player. Now he's a broadcaster. He writes for The Athletic. He's also a professor at UConn. Doug Glanville will be here at 3.30. And you talk about a guy that knows a lot about negotiations and where we are right now 
with Major League Baseball and the players. I will give you my perspective on it. But first, let's check in with the commander. Cody, how are you in uh, downtown San Jose? Are you surviving? Yeah, all is well here in downtown San Jose. Uh, I feel like I should be on uh, ABC News or something giving live reports, but uh, nothing's live from my apartment in downtown San Jose. I'm Cody Elias. Uh, no, it's, it's actually not too bad where we're at. I mean, I, you know, the, the, the protests and everything are more downtown San Jose going t- towards Santa Clara and city hall. I mean, I've seen some stuff boarded up on the Alameda, which is a main strip here. If you're not familiar with San Jose with restaurants and businesses and you know nothing major, it's not like targets or anything like that. The targets behind me on Coleman, which has been uh, closed and I think boarded up, but it, We've been safe, you know. My fiance's a nurse. She's been safe at the the hospital. She's been pretty busy the last few days, but again, in about seven months, I expect a uh, baby boomers part two to take place. So she better get that get the rest while she can. Yeah, you know, it's uh, funny. Every single night, uh, about seven o'clock, I go out to the park, which is right across the street from my house. Uh, it, it's a park that. Uh, Guys like Kevin Franzen and Mark Canna grew up playing Little League there. So I have three Little League fields directly. I'm, I'm sorry, it's it's right across the street. I don't have a house across the street from me. I, I have a park. So every night at about 7 o'clock, I go out with my sand wedge, and I hit balls working on my short game, and I hit it from one field to the other field, to the diamonds. And I just keep going back and forth, you know, grab a cocktail, go out and uh, work on my short game. And every night I see the helicopter going round and round because I don't live that far from downtown San Jose. I live in a place called Willow Glen and you can see the helicopter and you can hear noises. But uh, hopefully everybody's being smart. Everybody's being safe. Because these are crazy times. Not everybody is being safe. So we... You know, protesting is something that uh, America has been built on. But we need to be safe and respect each other, too. And that's one of the reasons why we're on the air. We're on the air because sitting around and watching this stuff on the news all day is not healthy. And I think that's what's important for us to come on here and to give you a distraction and give you something else to think about. Uh, I'm not going to take the bait. Like Joel Sherman from the New York Post, non-friend of the program. I'm not going to take this this bait that, oh, my God, the two sides between the player. This is a negotiation. And in in negotiations, you're going to you're going to go back and forth. And that's just the way it is. These guys have to know, like Jason Stark, I just saw it on Twitter, was on KMBR earlier today, and he's like, oh, man, if these guys don't play a season, they, you know, does, does the game even recover? That's where I would love to talk to players, and I would love to look at them and go, dude, you don't play, your contract means nothing. What do you mean? I had a lawyer who represented me years ago in a lawsuit that I'm not really supposed to talk about, so I'll be very generic. 
I was in a lawsuit for my career. And my lawyer, who was in the trial hall of fame, said this. A contract is a piece of paper. And it doesn't mean anything until someone's willing to fight for it. So you can be sitting there with your Mike Trout $400 million contract. But if you don't play and they don't play and there's no money, what does your contract really mean going forward? These guys got to realize this. And Nick Swisher, I think, put it best. And he was, Cody, what, last Friday? Yeah, last Friday he was on with us. And Swisherlicious said, hey, listen, all these other sports are going to be playing. And if you don't play, it'll be the worst look of all. It will be worse. Will it be worse than shutting down the season and not playing the World Series? That, I mean, that's a legitimate question. Baseball slowly recovered after that. But I, if 41 million people are unemployed and you guys are like, everybody's fighting over money and next thing you know, here's the PGA Tour. I mean, what is the date today? Is it the 3rd? Yeah, today is Wednesday, June 3rd. The PGA Tour starting up on June 11th. It's starting. You're going to see guys teeing it up. NASCAR's running. NBA is trying to figure out how to start the playoffs. NHL is going to start the playoffs. They're going to be playing. Football has announced no one's going to travel for training camp. You're going to you're going to have football. You're going to train like like the Niners will train over in Santa Clara. The Raiders are going to train at their new facility in Henderson, Nevada. So there's going to be no Napa for the Raiders. And actually, the Niners past few years, God, I can't remember. Where they used to, the Niners used to train, what, Rockland? They haven't done that in a long time. So you're going to have training camp starting up. And the, and the, the American sports fans are going to be looking around going, where's, where, where's baseball? What? They're fighting over money? Are you kidding me? Coming up next, a podcast I listened to yesterday from CBS Sports makes you realize this, you know, we're we're so into baseball, right? I mean, this is what we do. This is our life. Baseball is life. And that's what we're going to talk about, Scott Emerson. You know, for these guys who have been baseball their entire life, I mean, essentially, I've been in baseball my entire life. To not be playing, like to not have games, to have Memorial Day off, I couldn't even tell you the last time I had Memorial Day off. These guys are itching. And we'll talk to Scott Emerson about this. But coming up next, we're going to play for you a very smart guy who's going to tell you this is just not a baseball issue. The reason why it's baseball is because they're the first ones who have to deal with this. But everybody else is going to have to deal with it 
We'll play it for you next right here on A's Cast Live. Hi, this is Eduardo Perez from ESPN. When I'm in the Bay Area, I make sure I listen to A's Cast Live. I just got a recipe. French onion breaded baked chicken. This classic dry soup mix adds deep flavor to the crunchy coating on this quick chicken dinner. Buying or selling, this sounds like a good recipe, Commander. Uh, buying. It does sound good. I'm an onion fan, and I think and you mix it with chicken. I think that sounds – are you going to make it on the grill, or are you going to do it on the Traeger? How are you going to do it? I, well, I haven't really looked – at the recipe on how to do it. It just came to me in an email. I get a lot of recipes sent to me. Some I try, some I don't. All right. David Sampson of E of CBS sports used to work for the Marlins. I would listen to his podcast yesterday, nothing personal. And he talked about baseball and the other sports and really what they're dealing with. So there's a lot of tone deafness that's going on. People say it's just baseball, but it's not. You learned on nothing personal that all the sports, NBA, NFL, they're going to have a problem. MLB is forced to deal with it now because their season hasn't started. NBA did 70 to 80% of their season already. They could go straight to playoffs and teams are not going to be hit as hard this year with the lack of fans in the building the way Major League Baseball will if you go a full season without fans. The NFL, if there is only 20% capacity in ballparks, ballparks, excuse me, in stadia. So these stadiums, if they're empty, there's a huge amount of revenue that's going to be missing. The NFL and the NBA have luxury tax thresholds and salary caps. And I've told you there is going to be fighting. There is going to be, it may not be as public as baseball. But there are going to be issues between the players' union and the owners in all of these sports. It's just not baseball. You know, revenues, players have negotiated over time. Hey, we're the product, essentially. So that means we should get a certain percentage of the pie. And that really is when you talk about salary caps, when you talk about the NFL and the NBA and the National Hockey League. You know, baseball is different. But either way, the players, whether they have a salary cap or not, I mean, really, let's face it, baseball does have a salary cap. Even though we don't want to admit it and they don't want there's no salary cap in baseball, they hammer you with the luxury tax. And they keep hammering you and hammering you. And the more you keep going over it year after year, the more you get penalized. And if you go over it X amount of years, they start taking draft picks. I mean, it, it, it's a, I, I don't know, you want to call it a soft cap? I mean, however you want to, they encourage you not to keep on spending. And if you keep on spending and you keep going over these certain levels, we're going to hit you really hard. So that's why teams, even the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers, they want to get under the luxury tax. And they want to get it, you know, under at least at some point to restart their deal because they just keep hammering you year after year if you keep going over it. 
So whenever I hear people say baseball doesn't have a salary cap, it's like, yeah, they kind of do. It's a soft cap. And these, the smaller revenue teams are never going over it. They don't want to, they don't, they don't want to be penalized. So commanders, Pittsburgh pirates, they're not going to be spending like drunken sailors because they don't want to go over the luxury tax. The Kansas City Royals are not going over it. The Oakland A's, not going over it. But to me, where we are is to get to that middle ground. Everything in negotiations is about that middle ground. Where's the middle ground? To me, it's in the 80 range. So the players say, we want 114. Owners go, no, we want 50 to 60. What's the middle range? 80-ish. And I think that's where we're going to get. But make no mistake about it. This is coming in the other sports. Because the percentage that the teams make is the then a percentage that the players get. The NFL is the NFL is going to have to have the same type of conversation with their players union. I don't think Aaron Rodgers is going to make all that money. I don't think Derek Carr is going to get all that money. There's no fans. There's no parking. There's no hot dogs. There's no beers. All that money is gone. Think of the Raiders' new stadium. Oh, we're going to have this great stadium. No one's going to be there. No luxury suites. See, there's certain money that teams, they get to keep that they don't have to put into the kitty that everybody shares. You know, the NFL is smart that they share most everything. But what you keep is in your stadium. You keep your luxury boxes. You keep your season ticket money. You keep the beer. You keep you keep all that. Now, if people are buying jerseys. That goes to the main pot that everybody shares. Television money, that goes into the pot everybody shares. Your radio, you get to keep. There's certain things you get to keep. But that's where that, that you know, it's why the Raiders kept telling you we need a new stadium. We can't compete with these other teams money-wise. And now they thought they were going to be able to, but no one's going to be allowed in a suite. No one's going to be allowed in the stadium as of now. So we can look at baseball and, and criticize, but reality is they're all, I mean, and if this thing is prolonged, the NBA will have to deal with it next season. The NHL, I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's just a reality. Players need to understand you can't kill the golden goose. That's just the bottom line. And I do believe we are going to get something done. I mean, they're talking. You got to remember in the past, they didn't play ping pong. They didn't go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. In the past, it was so slow played. Oh, the players haven't heard from the owners. or The owners haven't heard from the players. These negotiations are going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Because they get it. This is an important week. 
it's still just Wednesday. And the and the thing that was negotiated in March, the owners can just all of a sudden say, we're playing 60 games and this is how it is. Who who was oh was it Brad Ziegler, former athletic, said uh what did he say, Cody? He tweeted, I think, about an hour ago, and just like that, MLB owners do their best to end the season before it starts. That was from Brad Ziegler on Twitter about an hour ago. Oh, these guys talk so tough. <laughs> In the end, you want to play or not? You want to get paid or not? You want to sit out? Who are we talking to? Was it either Monday or Friday? We're like, if you don't play, basically you'll be gone for like 17 months. That was Swisher. He mentioned it was 18 months. You'll be gone for 18 months because you go from – you figure you go from – we're supposed to have a season start at the end of March. You go through all this and you don't play. in Season end of what? End of October all the way through till next – that following March. It's about 18 months, yeah. March of 2021, excuse me. And then what you are ha- these? Go ahead. I was going to say, and then you have a CBA thing you have to worry about after that season ends. So it's uh, this is really interesting times right now in baseball that we haven't seen in a long time. And we saw what happened in 1994. It took two guys taking PEDs to bring the sport back. So uh, And a guy to break a lo- uh, and a guy to break the unbreakable record, right? People thought there's no way anybody is ever going to play as many consecutive games as Lou Gehrig. It took Cal Ripken breaking that record and then guys getting all juiced up and hitting home runs. Speaking of Sosa, you know what happened on this date? But was it uh, 17 years ago? The cork bat incident at, at Wrigley Field with the, the Devil Rays and Cubs. On this date in 2003, Sosa's bat broke. They found the cork in it. His career eh, pretty much was never the same after that. I mean, he was still decent, but steroids and a corked bat it was only he was used in batting in. practice yeah yeah he was all yeah he was all in that year well every year yeah i i mean it's it's almost you want to look at these guys again because the billionaire owners are still going to be billionaires i mean the bottom line is you go away for 18 months I mean that that that's the thing that's tone deaf, right? It's like, guys, what's going to be left? What's going to be left of of your profession if you go away for eighteen months? I mean, like, who's going to care? I don't think they're going to be that stupid. I think we're just negotiating. This is stand. This is standard. Everybody's trying to get what's best for them, uh, and that's just that's just how things go. But I'm I, I I'm really fascinated about what this season will look like. How will it be managed? Will we have someone hit four hundred? And that's can you imagine going into arbitration. What'd you do last year? I hit four eleven with a one thousand something OPS. It's a nice season. It's a nice little nice little season you had there. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to pull up the simulated season stats right now to see how many games they pl- that we've been through and see who leads in batting average on baseball reference. 
Just give me a... I mean, I want... I can't wait. Jesus Lazardo, And we'll talk to Scott Emerson about this a little bit later. Jesus Lazardo, he's taking the ball. Oh, we're not talking about innings limits. A.J. Puck, no. You're going once every five days. You're only going to get X amount of starts. Especially in a 50-game season. So right now, uh, Ozzy Albies threw 63 games in the baseball reference simulated season by Out of the Park Baseball. In 63 games, Ozzy Albies has 101, 101 hits and 270 at-bats or a batting average of 374 already. That's it? Yeah, I think Altuve's right behind him and hits in, with 94. The next closest is Elvis Andrews at 81, but he's only hitting 308. So you got Altuve hitting 356. You got Ozzy Albies hitting 374. I'm looking to see because if you sort by batting average on here, it's going to bring up the guys that are one for one on the year and they're batting a thousand. But it looks like uh, Ozzy Albies is the the guy right now that has the highest batting average when it comes to hits and at bats. Can I give you a personal note? Oh, always. I just got this notification. Five years ago today, I quit dipping. I forgot I have this in my calendar. Five years ago. How about that? So 2015. I would, yeah, I knew you then. I think that's when I was uh, – that would have been right after I, I left. When I, became, when I became Commander Cody and I left producing the night show with you and moved on to waking up at the, the, the crack of dawn to, to work on mornings. But, um, wow, congratulations. That's, I mean, habits are hard to give up. And to give up something like that, that you, you know, that they change that your life I'd for the better. I was 18 years old. Yeah, well, it was – I had tried to quit for years, but unfortunately – and I'll never forget the phone call. It's when my mother's breast cancer came back and we knew it was not going to be good. Um, she asked me to quit. And when I got home, I'll never forget this car. I was driving right I'm on going southbound on 101, right by Candlestick Park and having this conversation. I went home, took my can, dumped it in the uh, I, I dipped Copenhagen. I dumped it in the toilet, and I've never had a dip since. So today is my five-year anniversary of quitting dipping. I'll tell you what. Last last year, so as I talk about all the time, that during the All-Star break, which doesn't look like this is going to happen this year, I was going to beach house in San Diego. And last year, so... Down at the beach, they have these, they're like mini markets, right? So they've got everything you need. They've got sunscreen, food, medical supplies, booze. I mean, they got everything you need, right? Because there's not really a grocery store close to you when you're at the beach. In San Diego, they, they got this one big, um, was it Lucky's or whatever it is? But for most part, you know, for your beach house, if you need anything, you just go up to one of these. And they're pretty decent size, and they got a lot of stuff. They got everything you need. You want dominoes? They got it. You want a beach ball, a boogie board? They got it. So I was in there with my daughter, and I looked up, and a can of dip was like nine-something. I was like, what? No, over $9. I was like, wow. 
what they have done with dip and cigarettes and what they cost now, uh, it, it's not only a horrible habit, it's now become a very expensive habit. And don't you have to be 21 now to buy cigarettes and tobacco in California? I, I, have, I have no idea. I don't buy either anymore. I'm, I'm out. Of, I was so bad that I knew uh, 880, 101, and 280. I knew every place where I could buy a dip. <laughs> How bad is that? Well, I'm, That's why I'm so happy I got rid of that habit. It's an awful habit. All right. Earlier today, we got a chance to catch up with Jesse Roberts, or excuse me, Jesse Rogers, who has been doing a great job. Uh, not only on television, but also on ESPN.com. Jesse, it's great to have you on the program once again. How you doing in Chicago? Hanging in there, waiting for baseball to return. I'm kind of tired about reporting about these labor issues the owners and the players are having. Hopefully we'll, we'll have baseball within a month here, but it, it feels like we still have a long way to go. So until then, we just got to wait it out. Yeah, you did the article on ESPN.com talking about, you know, games and salaries and all that kind of stuff. And and, and it's actually pretty interesting from a standpoint of, you know, people are going to look at baseball and go, oh, here we go again, baseball and greed and money. But this is the same conversation that the NFL at some point is going to have to have with their players association. And it's the same conversation that, you know, with these leagues that have salary caps, when you talk about the NBA or the NHL, it's just baseball's having to do this first, right? Well, sort of. Remember, those other leagues actually have a little bit of an advantage having a salary cap, at least in the middle of a crisis here. 2021 is going to be a strange year financially for these leagues as well. But remember, when the revenues go up in those other leagues, uh, the profits go up for the players. When the revenues go down, the profits go down. There is a partnership that probably, as we see this thing from from afar here, it probably helps those leagues and hurts baseball right now um it it also doesn't help that there is no real partnership with revenues right between the the league and the owners because there's no cap and there isn't a lot of trust either so they're really working they're 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 kind of flying blind during this thing trying to figure it out and if they had a formula already in place you know i mean a system or had better trust i think we'd be in a better place but a couple things working against baseball and it's you know, they, they created this mess. They, they need to get out of it. When, when I see the players want 114, which supposedly the owners today have turned down, and then the owners come with 60 to 50, I just think we're, we're negotiating and meeting in the middle is somewhere around 82 to 80 games. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, that was the initial offer by the, the, the owners. I mean, I think they would love to do that, um, but not at a full prorated salary. So that's the problem there. Um, they, they don't want to pay uh, the 82 for the 82 games. They want to give a cut rate, even though the players think they negotiated this late in, in late March, that they would absolutely get their, their full prorated salary. So 82 sounds good to me. And I'm actually, you know, a little bit more on the player's side. I think they should get paid per game. That sounds right during a pandemic and a short season, health risks. Um, but the owners say, no, we're going to lose a ton of money that way. We can't do it. <sighs> you know, and, and you just, you know, how does it get done? How do, how do you see – I think the one thing that I like 
is the fact that normally in these negotiations, they take a long time. They take a, I, I think the thing that I've noticed is that they're talking because they both have urgency and normally we don't see urgency in baseball. So how do you think it gets done? Um, I think it gets done <laughs> sort of in a, in a backwards way. They, they come to an 11th hour, which is going to be a little bit later this month. And they realize the alternative is disastrous. Not playing will be terrible for the game financially. Will be terrible optically in, in, in the country. Will be terrible for the future of the sport, not just this year, this summer. I, 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 it, so that's a weird place to do it from. Okay, we can't allow this to happen. So working backwards from that, what's the worst, best deal we can both make? And I was on, on, on Get Up this morning on ESPN, and I, I said, look, uh, the players mentioned deferrals in their offer. Let's, let's play with that a little bit. The owners mentioned less games. Let's play with that a little bit. Let's say it's 70 games, uh, 65 games, with uh, deferring some salary in 21 and 22. There's got to be something there to play with. There has to be. It can't just be all one way or all the other way. Um, right now I, I, I've talked to agents. They don't see a middle ground because both sides are so, you know, uh, in their corners, but there's gotta be a middle middle ground. And it comes out at the 11th hour, in my opinion. You know, there was an article on ESPN.com and talking with the owner of the Chicago Cubs, you know, there's always, Oh, these, these teams are just flushed with cash. Is that the truth or are they not flushed with cash? I actually did that interview. I, I tend to I tend to believe him in that respect. They they they're not. Look at the airlines. It's, we all thought they were flush with cash, right? You know, it doesn't work as easy as easy as easily as we'd like it to. And baseball um, isn't as flush as it as it should be. But you also have to say they shut down just as the season was supposed to start. So unlike the NBA or NHL, they saw no revenue streams this year. And, and they're trying to pay their office personnel and, and the players. And the bottom line is, just like most big businesses these days, they didn't save for a rainy day. And they can say, oh, who would have predicted this? And that might be true. But, you know, that's the point of saving for a rainy day. You can't predict what's going to go wrong. So, I mean, you can, see, you can make arguments on both sides. I do believe, ultimately, it's not the player's job to take on the losses of ownership. I think it's the owner's job to figure it out, get some loans. And the weird thing about owning a, a, a sports team is, you don't really see the true profits in it day to day. You see the profit in it when you sell it. You know, uh, an executive said it to me the other day. If you own a Picasso painting, it, it, it goes up in value every year. Uh, but all that time you're writing insurance checks and, and you're losing money off of it. But the day you sell it is when you make money off of it. And there's some truth to that. The difference is these are billionaire owners. They can figure out how to find the money. You know, and the TV money is, is really what, they're trying to get is it true the majority of the national tv money comes when you have the postseason oh absolutely because think about the 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 weekday games nationally i mean baseball is a local sport until the playoffs the ratings on espn or fox during the during the regular season are just okay i mean there's a game there's games every day and every night you happen to throw in a national game it does a few numbers but the playoffs is when people tune in they take off work that wild card game does Huge numbers. The advertising's big. The, that's when the country starts watching. The casual fan is watching other teams that normally he's not interested in. So it, it most definitely, because of the nature of the sport, it, it is most um, profitable in the playoffs. 
you know, go go at spring training, the Oakland A's, the confidence in this group as they're just getting one year older, back-to-back years of winning 97 games, back-to-back years in the wild card game. They were all talking about we don't want to be in that wild card game. And in a 162-game schedule, you know, basically teams that are not good, they get exposed. But now that we're only going to have, I don't know, 80 games, 50 games, 60 games, it's kind of like, you know, the really good teams will still be really good, but there's going to be some teams that have a shot that we didn't think had a shot. How do you see a shortened season? Yeah, I, I'm fascinated by the shortened season. I think it'll be very interesting to see how um, the intensity kind of um, goes up a notch with, with more meaning in each game, right, all the time, every day. Um I, I think the obvious answer to me is the experienced teams are going to be better off. I mean, I'm in Chicago. John Lester is coming towards the end of his career. But if you give that guy 15 starts instead of 30, he might come up with some, some you know, big numbers. And, 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 and I think the same thing goes with the hitters who normally might pace themselves or whatever. I mean, I think the experience is going to help in a shorter season. With one caveat, and on the other side of town here in Chicago is the White Sox. Um, uh, you never know what a young team, team can do if it gets off to a fast start, right? There, there's always that chance they ride this this wave early on to, to to something special. So, you know, teams like the A's and the Cubs, I think, have an initial advantage. But I'll tell you what, if I was a young team and I got off to a hot start in a 60-game season, I would just be so juiced to, to have a chance at, at, a, at a crazy, strange year in the playoffs, and, I, and I'd, I'd be so excited about that. So. I think the answer is I don't think anybody knows what a 60 to 70 to 80 game season is going to look like. It's going to be, it could be upside down for all we know. God, it's going to be wild. And then, you know, we've seen that in 82 games, there's quite a few players that hit over 400 in 82 games. There's a lot. I mean, Ted Williams did it multiple times, Tony Gwynn, Wade Boggs. I mean, there's a lot of guys. Will we finally, for our lifetime, even though we'll have an asterisk, but watch a guy hit 400 or more. I, yeah, I think it's possible. You know, I had a player say, you know, with that short season, if I hit 180, I'm screwed in arbitration. I said, well, what if you hit 400? You have just as much a chance now. Um, I think it's certainly possible. It'll be a little bit watered down, obviously, uh, having to do it over 80. But we'll be excited over it. I mean, that's the thing. The Things like the bat, a batting average will, will be more interesting to watch than total home run numbers, right? Like, who cares if a guy hits 20 over 80 games? But 400, you know, the the, 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 bat, the average things will be interesting, right? Average innings pitch per game, whatever it is, that that's going to be more interesting than any uh, totals. And not that uh, most people uh, pay attention to totals anyway these days, but, but more than ever, the rates, the averages are going to be more interesting. Can you imagine going to arbitration with an average over 400 and your OPS over 1,000? <laughs> Yeah, oh, it's going to happen. It, oh, I mean, the thousand for sure. That'll definitely happen. That happens now. Uh, the I mean, batting average of four hundred is going to be interesting, and and there's going to have to be some some rules set down for this coming arbitration year. Obviously, uh, um, you just you can't go by the old norms. You can't give a guy a hundred million dollars because he hit four hundred. I think the only thing that you know I'm going to really enjoy. Because this is going to be tough. I mean, for all of us, we're used to, I can't believe I wasn't working on Memorial Day. I mean, I've worked on Memorial Day for the last 27 years. You know, uh, the one thing that I do and I am going to like 
is the fact that I don't think we're going to have the innings limits. And I look at, for our team, Jesus Lazardo, A.J. Puck, these young pitchers that in spring training we were asking the question, how much are you going to allow them to throw? How many innings? How many starts? I'm glad I don't think we're going to have to deal with that. We got a lot of great young pitchers in the game, and we're not going to baby them during this short time. And, and think about young hitters that might you know, do that whole month in the minor leagues to save service time. I'm not sure that's going to matter, right? Um, I, let's put all the good players up. In the, first of all, they're all going to be up anyway in some capacity because the expanded roster. So, yeah, there's so many little things to this now on top of it, unless they change it. We have the new rules. Pitcher has to face three batters, which I kind of hope they keep in place because uh, the, <laughs> this is a chance. If they, first of all, I, I, I am in favor of, of, short, of fewer games because you try to play 114 games, it would be some bad baseball and i'll tell you what the country needs baseball but a week to two weeks into a a season of bad baseball people are going to tune out like you get that gets old quick i want to see good solid baseball i don't want to see five to six pitching changes a game i mean that's what we're looking at with the expanded rosters especially if you don't keep the new rules in place so look i think that's very important coming to an agreement everyone's going to be cheering it if they actually do, and then 80 games, so oh, uh, playoffs start right away. But if a week into it, we're seeing four and a half hour sloppy games, boom, the, the channel goes off, or, or better yet, gets turned to UFC, NBA, NHL. I mean, you talk about the competition in July and August that baseball's never had. They're going to have it, so it better be a good product. Let's end on this, and I can tell you, everybody who comes on my show hates the electric strike zone. Nobody wants it. But I asked the question, if we're all about social distancing and you've got a hitter, a catcher, and an umpire who may be of the age group we're really trying to protect at 60 and above, right. is this the time that you say, okay, we're going to go with the electric strike zone. Main reason is to stay healthy and stay safe and just give it a chance. What do you think? I mean, here's the thing. I think it's a, a decent idea. If it's coming down the road, this is the year to do it. Maybe not because they've even social distancing, just because it's going to be such an unusual season anyway. Let's just throw everything at the, at the, at the wall in this unusual season, and that would be one of them. I mean, the, the bottom line is uh, the other umpires, I mean, I guess they can social distance a little bit, but the, uh, the original idea of having an uh, electronic strike zone included um, – um, an umpire still behind home plate there. Uh, and, and so, yeah, you're going to be changing the whole dynamic of it if you do it the way you're talking about. So, I, I, you know what I mean? Even with, even with a robot ump, they were going to have a guy standing there. And I guess, I, I guess they would not do that in, in, under your scenario. So I just, I, from what I've heard, they're not going to do that. They're not going to introduce that. But it wouldn't, wouldn't be a bad idea just because if, it, if, it, if it's bad, if everyone's going crazy, well, it was a weird season anyway. We'll go back to the regular way next year. You know, during this pandemic and during these times of the protest, you know, it's uh, it's, it's important that we continue to entertain our fan bases. And I think you guys at ESPN.com, you guys have done a great job covering the sport, even without any games. Thank you so much for the time. Be safe in Chicago, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for the kind words, and same out there. Stay safe. Talk soon. Jesse Rogers from ESPN. And I know everybody hates it. 
Have we had anybody on the show who has said, yay, on Electric Strike Zone? Have we had anybody that said, I'd like to see it? Uh, besides you and I, no. Not that I can, not that I can recall. Uh, a lot of people have been against it. And, I mean, I understand it, but I also want to see it because, you know, I'll use an experience that's nothing like playing Major League Baseball for real. But on MLB The Show, there's some very controversial strike calls on there that sometimes you don't get. And I'm like, if it was, a, if it was a, well, it is still a computer system, but still, I don't get calls. And I'm like, hey, in Major League Baseball, if this happened, uh, if that hits the, the corner of the, you know, the corner of the plate, that's a strike. I, I want to see it. You want to see it. But a lot of people, maybe traditionalists don't want to see it. But I think eventually it is going to come. It's going to be one of, it might be in the CBA, but I, I think the electric strike zone is coming. Uh, this will be the year to do it because it's going to be a shorter season once we hopefully get it going. This will be the right time to do it, but I do think it's in the future that we will have an electric strike zone. What's the average age of an umpire in Major League Baseball? It's got to be over 50. I think Baseball Reference has a page on umpires. Let me see if I can – If you let me do research. And what are we saying? we got to protect people who are 60 and older. So you're really going to have a batter, a catcher, and an umpire all – I mean, because one of the one of the reasonings for, hey, why baseball can get it going is it, it's it's a social distancing sport. I mean, the, to, the two instances that you really won't have social distancing is one would be batter, catcher, umpire. Two would be first base and a guy leading off. Did you find it? I'm looking. I'm not seeing anything yet. I know if you look at the bottom of like a box score or whatever, it tells you who the umpire is. And it'll tell you, like, if you look at a pitcher's page, it'll tell you what their history is versus each umpire. But they're all, you know, they're all, I wouldn't say old, but they're older. I'd say 40s and above. Oh, yeah. And I guarantee there's some guys, for example, I'll look up one guy. Country. Joe West. Major League umpire, he's 67 years old. So this may be the time that we go the electric strike zone. I just did a Google search. It says the average age of an MLB umpire is 46 years old with 13 years of experience. This is from 2019. So 46. You know what? And if it sucks, then you change it. You can do anything you want in this season. As Jim Harbaugh once said, we're, we're the 49ers. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> I mean, that's true. But, and you saw what the NFL did with the pass interference rule. They're not doing the uh, – they're not got the challenge anymore. They did it for one year. It failed miserably. Um, I think they did that more to appease the Saints and what happened in that NFC playoff game, but – they did that and they took it back. So you're right. You can just you can obviously you can take it back if it if it doesn't work. And with the umpires, they should all have a mask and a shield. They all should have it. I mean, for God's sakes, there it, it, there's so many different ways you can get this thing going. The Coliseum alone. You've got fifty something thousand seats to separate the players and, and everybody. You've got plenty. 
The KBO is playing. Everybody's going to get going again. Everybody. And what this will mean for our country to have baseball every day. God, I don't care. You're going to play 50. You're going to play 100. Just get back on the field. And to watch how, how like, Bob Melvin operates. Because it's going to be shorter games. By the way, Jared Diamond, he's now, what, Wall Street Journal, right? Yep, Wall Street Journal. He had a very interesting take earlier today. How baseball, for the first time, is really saying we want to play less games. For all these years where people have said, do we really need to play 162? What about 142? What about 132? What about 120? No, 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 I got to have 162. Have to have as many possible games because that's the way we make our money. Have to play 162. For the first time in a very long time, Baseball is arguing for less games. I don't know when we've ever seen that. I don't remember ever hearing that, that the actual sport wants less games. Because whenever we've mentioned less games in baseball, people, what do they say? Never will happen. That'll never happen. It's kind of like the opener. Oh, teams with good rotations, they're never going to use the opener. I remember Vince Catronio said that to me. Hey, the Astros, and the minute the Astros used the opener, I texted him. <laughs> oh, the Yankees, they'll never use the opener. What? There was that belief that the Rays are just crazy. They're cheap. They have no, you know, they can't afford starting pitching. This is just a fad. No one's going to be using this. The good teams won't use it. Uh, have the Yankees and uh, Chad Green uh, done the uh, opener there, Commander? Uh, if I recall correctly, I think Chad Green was used uh, 14 times last year as the opener. If I, if I, Wait if a minute. I... No, no, no. The Yankees got so much money, they ne- they're never going to have to use the opener. Uh, there, was a point at w- there was one point in the season when James Paxton was so bad they considered using the opener – People are saying use the opener for him in the first inning because he couldn't pitch out of the first inning because he was so bad in it. Uh, Chad the Green, big maple? the big maple, he threw a no hitter a couple years ago. Uh, Chad Green started 15 games last year for the Yankees. That's right. You're lying. There's no way the Yankees, who have all that money, are ever going to do this gimmick called the opener. There's no way. You're lying. They also won 11 and four in those games with Chad Green as a starter. Now, he doesn't get the win, obviously, but still he gets credit. The team won 11 out of the, out of the 15 games he started. Uh, that's... Isn't, it, isn't it incredible how hard it is to make change in baseball? To where in life, we make change every day. There's change constantly around you every day. Your business, whatever you do for a living, there's change. There's major change in our country right now. But the one aspect of the United States of America that never wants to change is baseball. 
I mean, people are so oh, against my. instant replay. I and mean, how many people have you heard say, if the one thing I could do to make baseball better is I'd get rid of instant replay? There's people still against instant replay in baseball. And that, that started how many years ago? I don't know. They, they freak out. What do, you, what, what do you mean a reliever has to face three batters? What, what do you mean? What do you mean an electric strike zone? Try it out. You may love it. I mean, baseball is the last to get in the pool on eh, other than Jackie Robinson. What's baseball been the first at? Instant replay? No. We don't even call when the New England Patriots take on the Dallas Cowboys. We don't call that interleague play. When the Golden State Warriors play the Boston Celtics, we don't call that interleague play. We still make it like, okay, they're the National League, we're the American League. And when we play a National League team, it's interleague play. I want you to think about that. When the Sharks play the Penguins, it's not interleague play. It's just teams on your schedule. We're all in the NHL. We're all in the NBA. We're all in the NFL. But in baseball, oh, my God, this is, Giants are taking on the A's. Oh, my God, it's interleague play. I never understood it because in the NHL is a great example. You brought up the Penguins and Sharks. They play twice a year every year. Where in interleague play, the, the Giants and A's will play once, what, every three, every three or four years? So you have to wait. Every four years. So it's like – so in hockey, they play – pretty much every team plays every team. Yes. Twice a year. NBA, every, you, you, you get a schedule for the NFL, and you rotate. If you're an NFC team, so you Niner fans, you guys rotate. You West, you know, you, you're going to rotate the different divisions in the AFC that you're going to play. But you don't call this like some dramatic thing that when um, – give me a team. Uh, when the Titans come to town, the Niners don't go, ho, 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 ho. This is interleague play. They're different than we are. It's like, that's a good pull. Those are two teams in the, t- in the conference title games last year. I, it's Think just, about it's that. Ridiculous. Baseball's so it's got it's got to modernize. We got to modernize, and here's our opportunity. This is a great opportunity for baseball to say, you know what? I, we've wanted to change X, Y, and Z. Try it out. Every other sport makes rules changes. And if the rule changes suck, you get rid of it. Nothing has to be set in stone. We're going to try the electric strike zone. If it stinks, we'll stop. If it works, we'll continue. Reliever has to face three batters. If it stinks, we'll get rid of it. There's nothing wrong with change. Seven inning double headers. I really think if you did seven inning double headers, people would be like, yeah, sign me up for this. They're going to be, first of all, we're going to be cool with, I mean, I, I, you know, Jesse made a good point. If the product, if you, if you come out and have games, let's say like the London games, those London games were awful. That was bad baseball. Yankees and Red Sox. Oh, it was terrible. 
Each game was what? Four hours, 40 minutes. The other one was four hours and 20 minutes. Yeah, you know, just, you know, your standard Yankees, Red Sox length, just amplified in, in England. A lot of runs being scored. Is Steve calling us? I got to call him, so I'm going to call him here in a minute. Steve Phillips. Used to be on ESPN. Former general manager. Was with the New York Mets. I mean, that's the one that's the one thing that's been really cool in our game is because I don't remember I don't remember executives becoming broadcasters, becoming media guys. I mean, Jim Bowden now is a multimedia guy. Steve, how you doing? It's Chris Townsend with the Oakland Athletics. Hey, how are you? I, I am doing well, and you know, I, I was just talking to my audience here as we are on live, and I was, I don't remember growing up, general managers then getting into the media as we've seen with yourself and Jim Bowden and, and Dan Duquette. Uh, it, it's really been fascinating because we've always seen ex-players, uh, ex-managers, but to have you guys now go into the media and give us a whole different perspective. What's that been like for your career? Yeah, you know, I think that, that one of the things that, that I wondered when I first got into it was, you know, I figured, well, the next big name, sexy name player, they're going to say, all right, well, we want that guy over you. But what I found was that being a general manager is a different way of thinking. It's a different way of looking at things. And, it, and it's a unique way that that I don't know that everybody really understood because we've heard what players thought. We've heard what managers thought, but general managers have a different perspective that you've got to look at both the short-term impact of everything that's going on, but also the long-term impact and, and how that could impact individuals, the team and the organization as a whole. And so it sort of created a different niche uh, that, that, that I think has been worthwhile to further educate the fans. And we've seen the growth of baseball fans and their understanding of the game grow so substantially you start to think about, you know, that batting average was the thing that we always thought was the most important. Wow, what's his batting average? That really doesn't tell you much of anything in relation to on base percentage and slugging percentage and OPS. And we've seen, I think, the education of, of you know, where, where we thought that wins were the thing to look for for a pitcher. And now we realize that's really a team stat. It's not about the individual. And I think that, that you know, for, for, uh, for general managers, there's been an opportunity, I think, to further educate a fan base and an audience uh, to look at the game a little bit differently. You know, it's the the famous line from Bill Parcells. You know, if I if you want me you want me to cook, you know, I want to order the groceries too. And that was the thing in football is these coaches wanted the power on personnel, and you saw that they were only thinking about the now. They weren't thinking about the future. And I think about that as a general manager is you not, you not only have to think about the big club now, but you got to think of the future. Plus you've got to run the whole minor league system. Yeah. So that, that distinction is sort of the rub that sometimes happens between managers and general managers, you know, managers look at it. Well, what can the guy do for me now? And the general manager has to look at, you know, you know, now, but also tomorrow. And, you know, managers want to win as many games as they can today. General managers want to win as many games as they can for the longest period of time. 
And sometimes the personnel decision-making doesn't always line up. It doesn't always sync up with, with what the manager would want and the general manager would want. There are times when managers look at it and think, well, if the guy's not doing anything for me, he's disposable. Just get him out of here. Get me somebody else. It doesn't work that way, right? There's, there's a process that you have to go through. Uh, I thought when you started going to a Bill Parcells uh, quote, I thought it was the one where I think he told his wife, don't tell me about the pain, just show me the baby. Uh, and I'm like, you know, you know the sort of, uh, you know, that was his other famous quote that, uh, that he went to. But yeah, I get it, right? That, and I think for managers, sometimes, you know, in the best relationship that managers and general managers have are the ones where there's a real understanding about how hard each other's job is. Uh, and and respecting that and being able to communicate through that. And I sort of learned the hard way. Bobby Valentine, my former manager, and I sort of battled through that process. And it wasn't uh, the most trusting relationship. And we won a lot together and had a lot of success together, but but we wore each other down a little bit. You know, I think about 1997 and 1998, Billy Bean was hired in 97, Brian Cashman in 98. They're very good friends, but their organizations are on the different ends of the spectrum, right? The Yankees have all the money, the A's don't. But the two of them have been so successful, and the runs that they have been on, when you talk about guys that have been running organizations since the 90s, and we're in 2020, that is so rare. Yeah, I mean, they were my protégés. I mean, I got the job in 97, and and, uh, Billy, a former minor league teammate of mine in the Mets organization, and Brian Cashman, a buddy from the New York area here, uh, and, and I think that as remarkable as it is that that they've had to, you know been able to su- succeed to be able to keep their jobs, it's just the physical and emotional and mental wear and tear of that job. I, I could not have done it. Like I'm amazed at those guys, you know, the, the John Sherholzes of the world that had the long careers, and for Billy and Brian, because it ate me up physically, emotionally, mentally. Uh, and you know, that, that the, the idea of hanging on every win and every situation and every decision that you make, uh, that it can wear you down. And I think that there's something to be said too, uh, for organizations to recognize that change for the sake of change doesn't make sense that you can replace a general manager or you're going to replace him with another young guy. That young guy is going to go through the same learning curve. The guy you're letting go just went through and, and, you know, he's going to make some of those same mistakes and that there is that, that experience in, in, continuity and, and consistency really is important. Some of the best organizations have maintained the decision makers in those key positions for a long period of time. And, and, and I think about when you were doing it, you're doing it in New York and the Northeast is different than everywhere else. The Midwest, the West coast, the South, the Southeast. What is the pressure like of being a person who runs an organization in New York? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, Billy Bean would always say to me, he said, I'd never want that job. He said, I would never want the job that you have there. He said, you know, you get a, you, you've got, you get enough money that you actually have to make decisions in areas where in Oakland, they don't even have to consider it. And you feel a certain obligation. Like I felt like, all right, if I've got a certain amount of money from the owner, I need to spend it because, you know, and, and, and because it's going to burn a hole in my pocket and it won't be there later if I don't because he might not let me go back to take that money. So you always felt like you needed to sort of spend what you had. Uh, and you, you sometimes, because you have money, get involved in making decisions for longer-term contracts that if they work out, you get a shot at a better player, but you also can sort of cripple and paralyze your organization that there's no exit strategy. And so, you know, I got caught in that a little bit myself with it. The other thing for me, I thought the Mets job 
was the toughest job in all of professional sports, the Mets GM job, because, you know, you got the pressures of the market. You're in New York with the Yankees, where they've got a history and tradition that's far richer and, you know, and an organization that's been around much longer than the Mets were. The Mets in 62 and the Yankees, obviously, from back in the day. Uh, and then you've got the 27 World Championships. You've got, you know, the Mets trying to win over a fan base. And, and it just felt like we had to try to, the expectations were the same for the Mets, but the resources were much different. You know, I remember Brian Cashman and I starting out every year saying, I'd say, you know, hey, what's your budget? And he goes, yeah, I don't really have a budget. I just sort of get the guys that think we can help us win. And we figure it out from there. And I had a budget. And I had, you know, this amount of money I had to spend. And if I wanted to, to get this guy who would take me beyond the budget, I needed to find a way to move money out of there in order to do it. Uh, but what Brian Cashman has done is he's evolved in a way. Like we, we used to always look at the draft, you know, different than in Oakland, where Billy would look at the draft, take the college guys you could get, look to sort of develop them. You know, we looked at it, Brian Cashman and I, is fresh meat to trade at the trade deadline to, get, to go get proven major league players. Right? We weren't going to give those young guys opportunities. And then Cashman sort of evolved in a way over the years that if the young guys that we're trading away are helping the other teams win, then let's find a way to hold them. We'll go get the proven major leaguers and blend our young players in with our veteran players to try to do it. And he's had a great run of success in New York with the Yankees. You know, I want to take you back to your playing days because I've talked to Billy about this. As you guys were in a very talented system, the Mets – but you had a bunch of crazy dudes there in the minor leagues that you were playing with. Oh, no doubt. I, you know, I, the thing that was that, that sticks out the most to me is, you know, for a position player, and I was a shortstop and second baseman, uh, for a position player, one of the worst times of the year is when you go to spring training and you get your first live batting practice against pitchers. Uh, and we used to go to spring training, and so we'd line up with Dwight Gooden, Randy <laughs> Myers, I mean, Ron Darling, and you're taking batting practice, Sid Fernando, you're taking batting practice against these guys who are blowing 98 and are just erratic enough to scare the daylights out of you that, you know, especially early in camp, you're going to get plunked a few times. I mean, honestly, it set me behind the first month of the season every year, or at least that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But the number of welt marks I got hit in spring training with guys that just had these elite-level arms, but they put the best major league teams in slumps, can you imagine what they did to minor leaguers who were trying to figure their way out uh, to get through it? So, uh, yeah, so we had, you know, I, I roomed with Kevin Mitchell uh, in the minor leagues uh, with the Mets. Mark Carrion was another guy I roomed with throughout the, the minor leagues. And, and uh, you know, Billy, obviously a guy that I was close to, John Gibbons, who turned out to be a major league manager uh, in that. But, you know, Dwight Gooden was a teammate of mine, Daryl Strawberry in instructional league. So, I, you know, I was around that, that era, the Lenny Dykstra's of the world and, and uh who, by the way, got defamed more by the judge who ruled on his case than he did Ron Darling uh, the other day, which was amazing, the, the sort of ruling on Lenny Dykstra. But, uh, you know, it was one that uh, it was a great era of talent in that Mets farm system uh, and a tough time to get up there because of all that talent. You know, every sport's going to have to deal with this. It's just baseball's having to deal with it first because no fans in the stands. It's going to happen with the NFL, but they haven't had their negotiations with the players. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen with the NBA and hockey. It's just baseball's front and center because they're really the first ones that have to negotiate this. How do you think this plays out between the union and the owners? Well, I, I'll, I'd say I'm hopeful, but I, I don't know that I'd go as far as saying I'm optimistic. I know others are, uh, but you know, I don't think the players are believing the owners when the owners say, if it's 
82 games or 114 games with prorated salaries and the players don't want to come off of that, we're better served to not play at all. And, and, and that's what I don't think the players believe, that the owners would be better served to not play uh, if the only option they have is prorated salaries in 82 games or 114 games that schedule. They're, they're just better off not playing. They'll lose less money by shutting the game down than they would to play under those uh, criteria. And so uh, I'm hoping that the latest proposal, that although the 114 games is a complete non-starter for owners because of how much money they're losing per game, the notion of deferrals was at least put out there. And that concept is a good one, despite the fact the context in which it was proposed doesn't work. On the other side, the owners who sort of threatened 50-game season uh, within that did say 50 games with prorated salaries, which the concept really works for the players, but the context didn't. But usually in a negotiation, once you put out that you're willing to at least consider a concept, you're suggesting that it's, it might fit for you in other contexts. And so I'm hoping that, that that may get us down the road of the right number of games with prorated salaries, with deferrals, with contingencies, that, that deferred money will get paid if we get to the playoffs, if we're able to complete the playoffs, if we're able to, because the playoffs is where the money's coming in for the owners to be able to afford the players' salaries that would get paid before the playoffs start. And so if we pay the players and don't have the playoffs, then you're looking at catastrophic uh, losses, and as Tom Ricketts, the owner of the Cubs, said, potentially biblical losses for major league teams. I just know this: if NASCAR's going, golf starting up on June 11th, NBA's going to have playoffs, hockey's going to have playoffs, football's going to start training camp and preseason games. If all of that's going on and baseball's not playing, it will be one of the wor- worst looks of all time. Yeah. So, so, I, and I and I don't disagree. But the one thing I, I want to point out to people, to, to be fair to baseball, uh, and here's the thing, I think they need to make a deal and they need to sort of put every individual personal issue aside and find whatever common ground there is to play. But the issue is that, you know, the NHL and the NBA were about 75% through their season and the players got 75% of their pay already or more. And so, you know, they, they sort of aren't as upset. The timing of the virus and the way it hit wiped out the start of our season and therefore and we don't know whether there's going to be fans and we don't know what revenues are and so we're we're negotiating a much bigger pie than what the nba and the nhl are so i understand we are where we are i just hope we could do it quietly and peacefully and get a deal done so that people can look at baseball as part of the the healthy solution to society both with the virus and with what we're doing dealing with all the social injustice out there right now so people can feel good about baseball. Let's end on this. I've always wanted to ask you, one of the weirdest things you've ever seen in baseball is Mike Piazza in a Marlins uniform. You trade for him. Did you know when he was being traded from L.A. down to Florida, did you know that you were going to be able to get him at the time? So, no, we didn't. In fact, we called. I called Dave Dombrowski after that trade just to check in with him. Uh, and David and I had made deals the preceding offseason to get out lighter and Dennis Cook. Uh, and so, you know, we had had a lot of discussions. And I, and I checked in to see what he was doing. Now, we had Todd Hundley, who was recovering from Tommy John surgery at the time, our catcher, who was a 40-homer catcher, a really good catcher. Uh, but he had Tommy John. We weren't sure what that elbow was going to look like. We weren't exactly sure when he was coming back. We were a good little team, but we didn't have star power, and we weren't quite a playoff team. 
Uh, and so I checked in and Dave said, we're going to hold them for a while. And, you know, I'll let you know if we're going to move them. And then about, a, you know, a few days later, he called back and said, you know what? We're not going to hold them. We're going to go ahead and make the deal uh, and see what we can do. And so, uh, you know, I went to ownership and, and, you know, there was a whole discussion. And we initially, uh, after talking to owners, came back and said, you want to, we don't want to duplicate a strength to bring in Piazza when we are going to get Humley back and give up our prospects and do it. So we're probably not in. Uh, and then, you know, after we sort of revisited and, and challenged ownership a little bit more on the concept and the topic of where we were, uh, we got approval to go back. And the, the interesting thing was because Dave Nabrowski and I had had so many conversations, I knew every player he liked in our organization because they all came up in some part of our discussion because we were in on Kevin Brown. We got lighter. We got cooked. Uh, and so uh, and I know that Dave likes to make the decision on the trade. He likes lists from which to choose players. And so I went back to him and I offered him, you can have one player off of list A, one player off of list B, and one player off of list C. And there were three players on each list. And on those lists, I put the players that I would have offered straight up in these three guys for Piazza. But I know he likes to make the decision. So I put Preston Wilson on list A, Ed Yarnell on list B, and Jeff Getz on list C. And then say, take your pick. And he came back and said, okay, we'll take Preston Wilson off list A, Ed Yarnell off B, and Jeff Getz off C. And we made a deal pretty quickly because we knew who he liked and, let, and put it in a format that he liked in order to make the deal. Absolutely fascinating. I just want to let you know, uh, Jim Duquette and Mike Farron uh, come on the program and my Sirius XM uh, came up uh, in my car that uh, my, my free because I bought a new car a while back and it can't. I re-upped because I support you guys. It's my favorite channel. Uh, I think you guys do an unbelievable job. So keep killing it on Sirius, and I'll keep uh, Sirius XM, and I'll keep uh, promoting you guys. Thank you so much for the time. Be well and be safe. Terrific. Thanks very much. Appreciate that. Steve Phillips, gen, former general manager. Uh, really good stuff. What was that stuff in there about, uh, about wins? Something about – it, it's a team stat, and batting average doesn't matter. I get I get called out all the time. Then we got a former GM who works on SiriusXM saying, yeah, no one really cares about batting average and wins. We've seen the growth of baseball fans and their understanding of the game grow so substantially. And you start to think about, you know, that batting average was the thing that we always thought was the most important. Wow, what's his batting average? That really doesn't tell you much of anything in relation to on base percentage and slugging percentage and OPS and We've seen, I think, the education of, of you know, where, where we thought that wins were the thing to look for for a pitcher, and now we realize that's really a team stat. It's not about the individual. Uh, how many games did he pitch in the big leagues? Uh, that'd, be, that'd be zero, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And what did he play? What position did he play? Shortstop. Ah. So a shortstop is telling you wins don't matter. I still have not met a pitcher who says wins don't matter. I hear a lot of non-pitchers tell me. So when you can find me a pitcher and you can find me a pitching coach, Kurt Young used to thank me about this. Kurt Young, friend of the program, Kurt and Scott Emerson used to listen to the postgame show as they would leave the ballpark together. And Kurt Young would say to me, thank you. I get so tired of having people tell me wins don't matter. They matter now too for quarterbacks. That one's that that one's interesting too. Like, 
Are we going to – for the NFL, it's – it's. I think – Why is it different? I don't think it Why is. Why would it be different? I don't care about quarterback wins. Yeah, Tom Brady's well, we great. About it. We, we talk, we talk, hey, what, 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 what's this guy with well, this quarterback? Doesn't matter what his stats are. Did they win the game? And was he was he in the game? We're, we're talking about the NFL giving – the Cowboys giving Dak Prescott a record deal. And what's the guy want? Who cares about how many games he wins? He puts up stats. Well, for the most part, he puts up stats. I don't – I mean, they're talking about giving him $40 million a year. Win a playoff game. Win, you know what? Win a Super Bowl like Patrick Mahomes did. Now, that's we're, when we were playing the audio from the podcast, Nothing Personal with David Sampson, he mentioned how the NFL is going to have to go through this. Patrick Mahomes is looking for a rec- record deal, and he's going to start talking to the Chiefs. You cannot give him upwards of 40 to $50 million right now and then something happened where your revenue is you know, shut down because that's going to cripple a team like the Kansas City Chiefs who are not a major market. Yeah, they won the Super Bowl, but paying your quarterback $50 million a year, now Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the NFL right now. But I mean, I just oh, oh, hot take. That's his facts. He won a Super Bowl. He he won an MVP. He puts up hot numbers. Take. He gets the quarterback wins. If you're into that, I love how no one's about wins anymore. Wins don't matter. You knew to change wins that, right? Don't matter. Jacob Degrom ruined that for everyone. What am I going to get paid on? What What am I going to? I'm just going to get paid on innings pitched. What am I going to get paid on? I mean, Garrett Cole got I mean, $36 million for winning 20 games last year, but he also struck out 326 batters and and everything else he did. So, I mean, the wins are great. You know he, what? The problem with this is Scott Emerson is taped. We had to do him earlier. He's on the East Coast. We should have got in. We should have got into this. Hey, as a uh, pitching coach, does uh, wins matter to a pitcher? What do you think he's going to say? Of course they matter. So, and, and he's a pitcher, too. It matters to him. I'm not saying it shouldn't matter to pitchers, but I'm saying if you're evaluating how good a pitcher is, don't base it off just how many how many games he won. Look at everything else too, because if a team loses two one and he pitched eight innings to get one run, that's not his fault. But why are the, why do the good pitchers always have wins and the bad pitchers don't? Jacob Degrom doesn't always have wins. Can't say outlier anymore. He did it two years in a row, and he won He's a an outlier. Him. He's a total outlier. Well, we'll hey, see. go eight innings. You go eight innings. Remember that stat I had? Yeah, we, if, a, if an A starting pitcher goes seven innings or more, the team's record is through the roof. This was yesterday, baseball reference. By the way, how, how many starting pitchers are there in Major League Baseball? Well, you figure five on a staff, so what, at least 150. And all you can do is bring up one guy? I'd have one to guy. I'd have to look. But base, yeah. baseball, baseball reference tweeted this out yesterday. And Who's your favorite pitcher all time? Mine? It's yeah. Greg, it's Greg Maddox. How many games did he win? Uh, 355. Okay. Yeah. We're never going to see a 300-game winner again. But, well, you I mean, Verlander doesn't have a chance. If he pitches another five years and wins twenty games, he'll come close. But he's already thirty-seven. But he, he I mean, he, he's the next closest bet, unless Bart. Well, no, Bartolo Colon. Hey, he's close. Hey, not having a hey, not having a full season affects these all-time greats. Him, you're taking host. away. You're, yeah, you're taking away. You're, I mean, if you're taking away half a year of Trout, I mean, you're taking half a year away of statistics that go on the back of the, as they say. Back of the baseball card. I feel bad for people. The guy I feel bad for a lot is Pulhos. He's chasing down a lot of major milestones. And Miguel Cabrera is 23 home runs away from 500. Verlander's closing it, hopefully trying to close it on, on 300 games. Uh, it, it, you're right. It's it's painful. But I wanted to bring this up just because it's kind of funny. Baseball Reference did their they – they put a tweet out every day about like different stats from their simulated season stuff. 
So Jacob DeGrom went eight innings yesterday, struck out 12, gave up five hits, didn't walk anyone, but the Mets lost the next year innings due to a three-run 11th inning. Typical Mets. Jacob DeGrom lost the game because didn't get, didn't get a win because he only get, he gave up three runs, won eight innings, so he got the quality start, struck out 12, but they lost the next year innings. Are you going to tell me he's not good because he didn't get a win? How about Steve Phillips saying the toughest GM job in sports, the New York Mets? I don't disagree. To some point, it was, I, I he's good. The, these guys, these guys who have become media guys who are general managers, they're fascinating to me because they're really smart. They understand the game better than we all do. They think about. Can you imagine if Billy Bean became a, a a media guy? The insight he could provide into the game. I mean, Phillips is good. He's a good talker. And it is true. They view the game differently than we do. They got to think of the entire organization. They've got to manage up to the owner. Then they got to manage down to the manager and the players. And then they got to worry about the minor league system. They got to worry about the draft. They got to worry about everything. And to do it in New York, where the expectations are always you must win, and you're in a market that you get dwarfed by the Yankees, you get dwarfed by the Giants and the Jets. Luckily, the the Knicks always stink, so you don't have to worry about them. But still, if the Knicks are ever good, I mean, you really are where 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 you fall in line and the New York sports importance, Mets are not bigger than the NFL. Mets are not bigger than the Yankees. And I I would doubt, I think you could say the Mets are bigger than the Knicks. But yet you have those expectations to win every single year. That would not be easy. No, not at all. And, I mean, especially because you're playing playing in the shadow of the Yankees, which they're winning 27 world titles where the Mets have won two, what, 69 and 80... 86. So they've won two World Series, which is great. Because, I mean, that, but then again, that's how many World Series the Marlins have won. And they've been around a lot, a lot less longer, but they're also playing in Florida. The one thing about Philip, do you know this? Was Phillips the GM whenever they gave the deferred contract to Bobby Bonilla? Because I think it's. Because so, uh, I'm looking right now and it says um, the Mets owed Bonilla $5.9 million for the, to- the 2000 season and no longer wanted him. So the club negotiated with his agent to attach an 8% annual interest rate to the money they owed him. With the clock starting in 2000, that ups it to $29.8 million, and the first payment started in 2011. So I think Steve was the GM when the Wilpons agreed to yeah, it. Might have been. But that uh, Piazza story up, was great. Coming up next, it's Ray Fossey, the face of the franchise, right here on A's Cast Live. Hi, this is Ramon Laureano. And the throw is going to be And you're listening to Ace Cast, your 24-7 destination for Ace Baseball. All righty. Play is open. Wednesday is known as hump day for everyone during the work week. But on Ace Cast Live, Wednesday means one thing. It's time for 30 uninterrupted minutes with the two-time World Series champion, two-time All-Star, 
two-time Rawlings Gold Glove winner, A's analyst on NBC California, and the face of the franchise, Ray Fawcett. Ray, how are you this week? Howdy, my friend. How are you and Cody doing? It's always great to talk to you. My goodness, it's been a long six days. Yeah, it, 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 it has been it's been definitely rough, no doubt about it. But that's why we're here for Ace fans to give them a, a diversion, something else to that's think about. Perfect. I'm glad you did. I'm, I'm glad you're there because that's exactly what Ace fans need. Because I can't think of anything really that's happened the last week. We can just talk some baseball, so that's good. But uh, I'm happy. You, I'm very happy you and Cody are doing it. I know that you guys have had a nice. Uh, list of guests on since we last talked so uh continued success you're doing a great job and very very proud of what you guys are doing ray are you really fake ray fossey on twitter are you running that no i am not i will say that no i i i have no idea who who that person is i say that person because i don't would not want to say he she whatever but no i am not fake ray fossey and um you know, uh, it, it's really kind of scary because uh, whoever it is has access evidently to the press box. And, you know, unfortunately, it's not 11, the press box area, because the guard at the elevator and guard throughout the, uh, the press box area, you have to have the proper credentials to get in there. And there was one time where a picture was taken when I was doing radio, taken off the booth and said, well, I'm in the broadcast booth today. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait what, you know, what's going on here? So... Uh, that's one incident. Another one when I pulled out of the F parking lot, uh, I was eating an ice cream cone, and someone said, "Great, great ice cream." And then uh, there was a uh, an officer at the 66 exit, and I turned left, and he was in his blue uniform. And you know, I, I didn't really come close. But then I, I got home, and I just happened to turn on, and I looked at it. So I almost hit a police officer, and I said, "Whoa, this is scary." You know, that something's going on. So no, it's not me. But I would like to. Is it you? No, it's not me, Ray. I got to be at you know. So some people have accused me of it, and I'm like, you know, <laughs> I, I I have a life, so <laughs> thank you, thank you, have, thank you I very don't much. Have time for that. Uh, but yes, it is somebody that has access to where we are. We've tried exactly. to figure it out. I mean, it's somebody that's got a press credential. We know that for sure. It, it has to be, and, and you know, there was one time where there was a photograph taken. I know of Glenn and me and the booth, and yeah. I, I, I knew it was Glenn, and, but then I realized someone told me, well, that could be Photoshopped, and they, you know, once it gets sent someplace, then somebody could pick it up and Photoshop it and, and have it just be me, you know, and, and so uh, I, I don't know what's going on, but it definitely is not me, and, you know, I, I do know for a fact that when the unfortunate incident with Buster Posey at home plate, I think the kid's name was Cousins, who ran him over in a game. And I remember doing an interview with somebody behind home plate. I was sitting, and the camera was in the diamond level, and I knew exactly. I mean, that's the photo that the person who is fake Ray Fossey uses, because I remember doing that interview, and fortunately, and, and, and I know it happens because he prefaces Everything by saying, I am not Ray Foxy, I am not a two time Gold Globe winner, da, 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 all those things, you know. So, you know, he does it. And and evidently, I've been told that if somebody makes sure that they preface that, then it's open open season, open game. But it, it, it's sometimes kind of hilarious. But 
I just want people to know it's not me because there's also some stuff on there I would never even consider uh, saying or doing or whatever. So, no, I, I am not big Fonzie. And I'm glad you're not either. And I know Cody isn't because Cody's too nice of a guy. Well, I, I think so that interview was with me. We were on the field. We did that interview. Uh, it wasn't. You're talking about Eastcast? No, no, no. That was back when we were on. Uh, when we started 95.7. It, it could have been. But I mean, it, it, well, it was. No, it was a TV interview. Downey. It was okay. a TV interview because I had a, I had a microphone and I was sitting behind home plate. So, but, you know, it, it had happened uh, on Getaway Day when we were in Anaheim. And I didn't even know about the play until I got to the Coliseum and all the writers were asking me uh, about the play. And then, of course, the next day we're back at the Coliseum and that's when I was interviewed. So that's where the picture that's on. I mean, if you if you I don't want to give the guy coverage and and, and all this, but I, I that I know when I've gone on to his site, that's the picture that he's showing. But no, I'm definitely not him. But uh, I, I believe it's somebody who does have access because. Because of things that have happened since 9-11, that uh, it's, it's a lot more restrictive up in the press box area, and you just can't walk in. And, and I would be shocked if somebody did just walk in and take that picture and leave without being told you're not supposed to even be in there, even before he got to the booth. You know, huh. the you, you've been through a lot of negotiations in your career, not only as a player, a broadcaster, but being around the game, you've seen work stoppages. You've seen everything in baseball. What do you think it, it's like right now between the owners and the players' union? Because I, I hope to God they both understand they need to get back to playing baseball. That's exactly what I was going to say, because I'm not going to take either side. I've been on both sides. And I'm probably, again, a handful of players that, that have actually played the game and been in the front office. So I know both sides, but... I think the most important thing, there's 40 million people filed for unemployment. And, you know, for them to look at, and they know to be locked up, locked or locked down, it's like being locked up, but, you know, in your house or doing whatever essential things only. Um, it's a period of time where if baseball is a healing process for America, they need to look at this year. And I believe this all along, that this needs to be a year in which Nothing is going to happen in the future based on what happened this year. But both sides have to somehow come to an agreement and have baseball back on the field because, you know, I was part of 94. I, I was a broadcaster in 1994. And it was a shock to me to see that baseball stopped. You know, you're thinking, well, it's going to come, they're going to come back for postseason. And then when the World Series, that whole postseason was canceled, I said, whoa, wait a minute. This, this is serious. And so I, I'm, that's scary. That was scary then. I mean, that was over, and matter of fact, that was the last work stoppage. That was over issues with between the owners and players. This is not that. This, this is, we're at a time in America and in the world, basically, where, you know, we're being shut down, the economy shut down, people are out of work, and you just cannot have two sides fighting. And that's why somehow, some way, I, I read just recently that the commissioner, Rob Manfred, has something that as a matter of fact a writer wrote it and you probably read it as well saying that you know he has something up his sleeve but he's not going to disclose it or use it unless he has to well let's hope and pray that whatever that is that is something that he can say that let's get baseball back and let's play some baseball you know if it's a half a season if it's starting on uh the fourth of july weekend america's birthday 
They would have the spring training in June, play three months, play the postseason. I could understand where, you know, the, the players are saying the more games played, the more money they get. But it does create a problem if you're getting into November because I have talked to people who say that if you have postseason games and your fans, uh, and, and who knows, let, let's hope also that, that maybe by the end of the regular season and especially postseason, the fans are allowed in the, in the stands because by that time, you're going to see football, both college and professional, probably saying, okay, we got fans in the stands. And so if, if that's the case, maybe that's, that's the precedent for what could happen. But if, if that is the case and, and you have postseason games at a neutral site, you depend on your fans. I mean, how loud was the Coliseum in 2012? And every year that the A's have played there, but 12 stands out as a year in which the fans were so, so dominant. And I was, I went to 455 consecutive sellouts in Cleveland uh, when the A's went in there. I didn't see all those sellouts, but I saw them when the A's went in. Those fans did not leave until the final out. And so their team, the Cleveland Indians, if they were down in the ninth inning, those fans stayed and they cheered. And if there's nothing more than motivation and an inspiration, that extra adrenaline, because your fans are there cheering for you. You want to play better. So if that's the case and you get a November and neutral sites, you lose that. And uh, so, you know, I, I think the best case scenario is they could do the half season, postseason October as normal, and then let the other sports take over. And then hopefully, God willing, resume next 20, 2021 under normal circumstances. But, Tony, I think if there are any disagreements, uh, I, I've said also that, you know, you could just say they had an agreement in March. But I think also you could say from both sides, players and the owners say, okay, here's a document stipulating that this is an aberration. This is a year that's not normal. Let's agree to agree on some sort of way to get baseball back. And then let's resume next year normal. And then when the CBA expires in December of 21, then yeah, let's talk about the issues you're going to talk about. These are not issues that are important as far as, as far as the players and the owners are concerned. Yes, I'm sure they're thinking that right now because they're in a negotiation. But I still think baseball needs to get back on the field. Both sides need to sit down and say, we need to find a way to get baseball back and let's hope and pray that it does happen. Because 94, 94 was, was a time that the players today don't remember because they were either baby or babies or not born. But that was devastating to baseball in America because there are a lot of people who said, I'll never watch baseball again. And I'm sure in that period of time, there are some fans who have never been back. And that's that for the state of the game of baseball. You know, if you're going to make any changes, this is the year to do it, just to try it out. All the other sports do it. You know, I mean, they had the, you could throw the flag for, for pass interference. They tried it. They ended up not liking it. They're not going to do it anymore. I mean, to me, Ray, and I know, a lot of people don't like any change in baseball, but if you have any idea of things you want to change, why not give it a shot in a season like this? I agree hundred percent. The universal designated hitter, because you know, the, the reason, I mean, the reason is that they say they don't want pitchers to get hurt because if they come back and, and maybe pitchers uh, are, are more likely to get hurt if that is the case. Uh, but you know, there, there are issues that, that maybe and I think it's going to be something that after the new CB kind of part of baseball anyway, where you have the DH in both leagues, we, you know, we've talked about that before. I wouldn't go so far as to say, put a runner at second base in an extra inning and go there. I, you know, I still think you need to keep some originality in the game of baseball, but uh, universal DH is one of them because I think over the course of a season, 
sure, their National League pitchers are going to be upset if that does happen. But I think, and I've always felt that because the American League did it in 1973, first team to do it, or first league to do it, that that said, okay, American League did it, let, let's just have it separate. It, it's created some issues throughout baseball over a number of years since the designated hitter has been in place. But I still think it, it's a harder game. People say it's a harder game than Ashley because you have to decide when to take a pitcher out. But I think it's somewhat harder in the American League with the DH because you have nine hitters. In the National League, you can you can pitch around the eighth place hitter. You can you have the pitcher coming up. Why would you face the eighth place hitter? So in essence, the pitcher is facing seven. Now there would be some pitchers who would dispute that, but but I still think in the American League, there's no such thing as a, a pitcher or an eighth place hitter that you can pitch around and get to a pitcher depending on the situation. But uh, you know they're nine nine hitters, and I would think that every team has a player that they can use as a designated hitter. Maybe it's not a permanent one, but one that can rotate uh, on a daily basis or whatever basis it might be to rest the guy, let him. I mean, just, just look at the National League. When, when the National League teams come to the American League parks, we've seen it at the Coliseum. The National League teams, I remember with Mike Piazza and, and Buster Posey, who likes to catch, but there are times that they can keep their bat in the lineup without having to put them behind the plate. And those are a couple of instances where catchers are given kind of a half day off because they still get to keep their bat in the lineup as opposed to having to be behind the plate. But uh, I, I still think that, uh, yeah, I agree with you that this is a year to do it, make some changes because they've done it independent baseball. Uh, they did it last year, implementing some of the, the new things, at least trying them out in the independent ball, which is not regulated by any major league baseball or minor league baseball, the independent baseball and see how they worked out. But uh, there, there are changes going to be happening. This is a good year to do it, like you said. So take me through it, because 73 was your first year with the A's. What was that like when they implemented the DH? How, how did people respond? Well, Charlie Smithley did a great job because he got Darren Johnson. And, and DJ, you know, was there and uh, came over from Philadelphia, I think it was, and and became the designated hitter. And he was kind of the permanent DH, but yet in the postseason, uh, again, I, I know that Monty Moore said, I, caught, I thought you started game six and seven. I didn't. Darren Johnson started at first base. Gene Tennant started behind the plate because we were down three games to two. But there was a case where the DH was not used in the World Series, and so pitchers did hit. But, uh, but it, it was interesting because um, in 72 – and, and previously, the, the three years I was in the big leagues, the pitcher would hit. And I remember there was an incident with Chuck Dobson of the A's, uh, the Oakland A's, when I was with Cleveland, that he came up when we were conversing about something that was going to happen, and thank God he told me. But, uh, but you know, it, it was different because then all of a sudden, 73, you look during the season, there's no pitcher hitting, and the pitcher's there. But, you know, I, I look at what Gaylord Perry was able to do, and this was in 72 when he did hit that he had 40 starts and 40 decisions, pitched 342 innings. So you fast forward to the DH, then there's no reason for a pitcher to have to come out of a game because the team might be behind. And that's what happens nationally right now. A pitcher could be pitching great for six, seven innings, but because the game's tied or the team's down a run, he's out of the game. But with the designated hitter, he stays in the game as the pitcher, and then maybe he gets a win. He, you know, he's, he's the best pitcher that is pitching at that time. And why bring in somebody out of the bullpen? So I think, again, personally, because I've been in the American League my whole life, I think it's beneficial, uh, advantageous to have the designated hitter. And especially 
unless you have somebody like the A's have Chris Davis, who in the case, you know, last year in Pittsburgh, he played left field because the DH was not used in Pittsburgh. He hurt himself and it may have affected his back of the season. So if it was in the current, perhaps the possible uh, new rules in which there's universal DH, then he wouldn't have to play in the field. He could just hit. And, you know, you think, think of, uh, of um, David Ortiz. I mean, he didn't even bring his glove to, to the field when he's playing first base. He forgot it one time because he, he wanted to hit. But I, I think it, it, it's good, but it was definitely different in 1973. But I do remember that Charlie Finley was very good realizing that the DH was part of baseball and he got Darren Johnson and the rest is history. DJ and I both got a first world championship ring. You know, it, it really is prolonged careers of great players because yes. at some point as you get older and you really can't run and you don't have range and, you know, but you can still hit. And I think of guys like Reggie Jackson, uh, George Brett, Dave Winfield, Paul Molitor. It's extended some guys' careers. How about Willie McCovey? Willie McCovey came to the athletics because it got to the point where it was tough for Matt to be in the field. So he came over. He was a designated hitter for the athletics. I remember Tommy Davis when he played for the Baltimore Orioles. He had been in the National League with the Dodgers. He comes over as a uh, designated hitter for the Orioles. It does extend careers. And then the case of Edgar Martinez, who finally got in the Hall of Fame. You know, I mean, he, he was a bad defender. So he was the permanent DH. Uh, it was a different circumstance. But, but I, I think the biggest thing, Tony, if you have the two leagues use, utilizing the DH differently, one with, one without, it does create a problem because your, your DH in the American League who is the permanent DH, that has to play the field because you want his bat in the lineup. And if he hasn't played there, and then it's totally different. How, how about when, um, was it a uh, picture with the Yankees, this hamstring running the bases in, in a national game? You know, the guy on base. And, and you know, it's, it's totally different. People say, well, what's the big deal about running the bases? If you're a pitcher and you're in the American League, you run your sprints, you get your legs strong to pitch. That's why I've always said covering first base as a pitcher is tough, and that's why it's nice to have somebody to go out and let him catch his breath. You can't do that now because it's a mouth visit. But whenever a pitcher has to go to a national league and he has to hit, and then he gets on base, everybody's excited about him getting ahead, but that means he has to run the bases. That's something he does not do and has not done until there's early play. So I think it's advantageous to have it in both leagues and for those like at Madison Bumgarner and Zach Grinke, who is now in the American League, doesn't matter for him anyway. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure there are pitchers who are going to be upset when it does happen, but it's going to because there are more pitchers who can't hit than there are the ones who can. So normally at this time, you're in the Bay Area and you're not dealing with the heat of Arizona. You're traveling around <laughs> and working. What's it like uh, hanging out in 110 degree weather? Uh, inside, <laughs> just just be inside. That's a whole different that that, that that weather the summertime in Arizona or like with Korak yeah. Vegas. That's all. That's a whole different. That's a whole different deal. But you know, I, I do believe seriously, and I may have said it before. My first game in AAA for the Portland Beavers was against the Phoenix Giants. And it was very hot game time. But I'll be honest with you. You can't tell me that Arlington, Texas, and places in the Midwest and the East with the humidity, there, there's no way 
those places are any cooler than what it is in Arizona. Because in Arizona, you can sit in the shade and you get a little breeze blowing and it's 105, 110. You don't, you don't feel the heat. If you walk in the heat with the direct sunlight's on you, yes, you do feel it. But no, I, I think it's, it's something that, you know, they were talking about resuming play in Arizona and Florida. Florida, I mean, it rains all the time, it seems like. And I just heard there's a hurricane warning down in Louisiana that's coming through this hurricane season. But the A's did have to leave there a couple of times from from St. Petersburg. But listen, baseball is baseball. The one great thing about playing in warm weather, Tony, you don't have to take a lot of time to get loose. Because if you're in shape, your arms in shape, your legs in shape, basically just walk out of the, the heat and you're ready to go. You don't have to do that much to get ready to play the game. I'll never forget my senior year at San Jose State. We played uh, University of Hawaii. And I'm starting this game and I walk out to the bullpen. By the time I got to the bullpen, I was completely drenched from the humidity. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. And, you know, again, something that bear in mind that the Bay Area weather is very, very good during the summertime. It's, I mean, they talk about the marine layer, the fog coming in and you see people in the stands on the 4th of July weekend with, with blankets and jackets. That's because it's cooler. October is the best month. But I will say, and I know as a player, when we played in Oakland and we had to go back to the Midwest and the East, we didn't take the off day and spend it there to get acclimated to the environment or the time zone. We flew the day before, we got in, and we played the game the next day. And the heat and humidity was so unbearable that I believe that whenever those teams would come west and play at the Coliseum, they you know, they may think about it being a little bit cool, but they said, this is great because – we're kind of re-energized because of the coolness of the weather. They don't have to worry about the heat and humidity. You know, when the players are playing in Arlington, Texas, and now with the roof that, roof that they have, it's going to be different. Uh, but with the open-air stadium, you can look down and you can just see the players because the field is submerged a little bit. It's uh, down in the ground. And so that heat and humidity, and just like you said about in Hawaii, that's what happened with teams that played, I know seeing players, you just look at them, just see their faces turning red and, and, you know, the, the sweat, the perspiration coming off their face and just, you know, the whole thing about being that uncomfortable. And that's why I, I believe with the uh, retractable roofs that the Rangers have now, they're going to get a lot of pitchers say, yeah, I don't mind pitching there unless it becomes a launching pad and they're giving up a lot of home runs. But at least from the weather standpoint, I felt badly for the pitching coach when he went out to talk to the pitcher. Because by the time he got out there before these, these new rules about mound visits, my goodness, they, they were losing weight just running from the dugout to the pitcher's mound because of the heat and humidity. But it, it's a different way of life. And uh, I, that's why I always love training in Arizona uh, in the spring because it's tremendous weather. Uh, you know, compared to Florida where you have the humidity, you, you don't feel like you have to work out as much in Florida, or at least I know I didn't when I played in the instructional league because – you just walked out and you felt like you were in shape and ready to go. Whereas in Arizona, and especially in spring training, when you're getting ready for the regular season, it takes more time for you to get the arm loose, to get the legs loose, to be able to play. The great Dale Murphy was on our program and was talking about back in the day when, when the Braves were actually ridiculous. They were actually in the NL West. But he, you know, <laughs> Hot Lana, he said they used to love coming to the West Coast. Oh, my God, right. going to San Francisco and L.A. and San Diego. He was like, thank God to get out of the humidity. By the way, Ray, um, there was an article on MLB.com about guys that weren't great, but they dominated Hall of Famers. 
And the one guy that they had for for Randy Johnson was ridiculous because Bob Melvin had way better numbers against Randy Johnson than this guy. So we started looking up all of our A's broadcasters and uh, and also uh, front office. So we looked up Billy Bean. We looked up you. You did you realize you you, you did really well against Nolan Ryan. What did I do? No, I didn't realize that. I don't want to admit it because he might still knock me down. Uh, <laughs> what did I do? You hit three thirty-three against him. Really? Was it one yeah. for three? <laughs> no, no, no. You were nine for 27, five walks. You even hit a triple off of him. Wow. I, I, I know he hit me once for sure. Did I ever tell you that story in 73? Did yeah. Did he, did, he hit you, did he hit you with a curveball? No, he dropped down through sidearm and hit me in the calf because oh. I, 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 I started screaming. And, and that was the 73 and 87. He's still playing. And, and I saw him, I was broadcasting. He was the Coliseum. And I said, Hey, uh, Nolan, you remember? He says, I remember. And I mean, he, he this 14 years later, but he said, a friend of mine told me I should change my delivery because he's right over the top. And he said, you didn't change it every once in a while, maybe drop down, throw a sidearm. He did it one time. He hit me, never did it again. And if I had not turned my calf, uh, or my leg to where it hit me in the calf. It hit, if it hit me in the shin, it would split it open, and I would have been done. But I'm laying on the ground. I'm looking up at him. I go, why? What are you doing? Just throw it over the plate. Because with him grunting, I, I'm surprised that I got nine hits off of him because he was as dominating as pitcher that I ever saw. And do you know in his last season that his last pitch, when he t- messed up his arm, his last pitch was thrown at 98 miles per hour. 98. And he's yeah. 45 years old, 45. Up, up in but Seattle, he, and he walked off the yeah. mound. He walked off, and that was the end of his career. But uh, what a gentleman. And, uh, you know, I, before we go, I, I want to talk about another gentleman, unfortunately, just passed away, Roy Steele. And uh, we, lo- we lost the voice of God. And you think about Chet Farrell in the uh, press box there with David Dunn and, and the group over in Diamond Vision or A's Vision now. And Harold Miller, so three three great icons. Unfortunately, have passed away at Coliseum. So once baseball does resume, we're going to miss those guys. But the voice of God for sure. I talked to him about four days prior to his passing, and he sounded great. He sounded like it. I said, Roy, you could be on the PA system right now, and you'd sound great. And then, unfortunately, uh, health issues, and he passed away. But uh, just want to have everybody remember Roy and his family, or his family, as uh, we did lose a great member of the A's organization, unfortunately, just uh, this past week. Yeah, and it's so sad, the three of them passing, and, and yeah. uh, definitely a, a big part of the A's family, yeah. and that's why we uh, we need to keep all you guys in bubble wrap, Foss. we got to protect all <laughs> you guys. <laughs> well, listen, I just enjoy talking to you and having the commander contact me and saying, you know, call this number and we'll, we'll have you on. I look forward to Wednesdays and – you know, again, let's just hope and pray we get baseball back. And uh, I'm glad you brought that up because the negotiations are going on right now. And, and I'm sure a lot of people are are checking the newspapers, checking the news just to find out what might be happening, hopefully sooner than later, and we can get it going. But uh, I've, I've been involved in negotiations, and I know in 1972 when I was a player representative, and I've said it before, and I'll never forget having to raise my hand to uh, say that we're not going to play. But I, my minimum salary then was $7,000. That's what I was making. And then, um, you know, now it's 563. So I don't think from either standpoint, there's going to be too many people feeling sorry for the players or the owners. Uh, and, and again, I emphasize both sides. 
that they need to come to some sort of agreement so we can get baseball back and, and get some normalcy back into the way of life that we have seen. And, and I agree with you, you know, this being, uh, what, June, the, what is it, June 3rd, June 2nd? Uh, one, two, three, June, what is today? Whatever it is, June it's June. <laughs> June 3rd, okay. Because normally, yeah, it's a schedule that's put together, you know, playing the Tigers right now at home. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a schedule, and you get used to schedule putting in your book, and you realize that while it may seem like it's a long season at the beginning, but all of a sudden it's over and you say, where did it go? And that's what the success of the Oakland A's have created, that feeling of where did the season go? Because they have had an opportunity to win, had an opportunity to be successful. And because of that, a season goes quickly. Again, I've been on both sides where we've lost and it goes as slow as molasses. But I've been on side on the side where we've been winners, like at the Coliseum and playing for the A's when it's just gone by so quickly in the summertime. And you, you, you look up in October and you go into the offseason and say, where did the season go? So that's what the A's fans have been able to enjoy over the years, the success, the success of the Oakland A's, and realize that baseball is America's pastime. No matter what they say, it's still the greatest game in all sports. And let's just hope and pray that we can get baseball back to where people can realize that again. Let's end on this. We looked up you against Hall of Famers. Uh, you you hit 250 against your, your pal Gaylord Perry. You hit 273 against Fergie Jenkins. You hit 275, a jack and six RBIs against Jim Palmer. We already mentioned 333 <laughs> against Nolan Ryan. You hit two home runs and hit 242 off Catfish Hunter. But the guy you own, he's not a Hall of Famer, but you owned him, Jim Kitty Cott. You hit 390. Wow. You you hit 395 against him, two home runs and 11 RBIs. Wow, and he should be in the Hall of Fame. But you you know you know one quick thing that happened when I was catching, we had the the shin guards that never covered over the way that the shin guards do now over the uh, just above the knee, and it was an orange part of the top of the shin guard. And the players in Minnesota playing at the old Metropolitan Stadium, where that now the Mall of America is. Jim Cott and the pitchers would use uh, golf cleats because it, not a lot of mud would accumulate like they would in baseball cleats. He slid into me at home plate. Obviously, he was hitting during that time. He slid into me. I put my left knee down and blocked him off the plate, tagged him out. The next day, I looked at my knee. There was He had gone through my shin guard. There was part of the orange part of the shin guard in my leg. That's how much that, that golf cleat had taken. The, the shin guard and ran it into my knee and I had to take that. So what is this? And I looked at it, part of my shin guard, but that's what those pitchers did. But uh, Jim Cott is a great pitcher, was a great pitcher, 16 gold gloves. Uh, I mean, he could do it all. Should be in the hall of fame. I hope one day that he is before he leaves the earth. A good man. But I'm glad to know all those numbers. I'm glad you, you pulled them out because um, you know, that's, I never knew. I was just happy. All I know is that Matt Newton, our strength and conditioning coach, uh, back in the 80s, um, late 80s, I asked Mac just a couple of years ago about failure, the game of baseball being a game of failure, which it is, as we know. And he says, yeah, but what did you learn? Well, in my case, I know my lifetime batting average was and how many outs I made. I had a chance to learn a lot. Unfortunately, I didn't know what Mac was going to say many, many years later, or maybe I would have learned I had a better lifetime batting average. But you know, as the old saying goes, I have one, and uh, it may not be that impressive, but I'm glad you brought out some of those numbers against some of the great pitchers of the game of baseball because, uh, you know, 
maybe I, I tried my, my I tried a little bit harder when I faced guys that I knew were very good. But I was very happy. To, I, I'm good. I had numbers against uh, Captain Shunner, but I was also very proud and happy I got a chance to catch the Hall of Famer because he was outstanding. Foss, you're the best. We'll talk to you next week. I always look forward to Commander Cody. Great job as always. You too, Townie. And the best to all of the great A's fans. We will be back and hopefully soon. Coming up next, Scott Emerson, pitching coach of your Oakland Athletics, right here on A's Cast Live. Hi, this is Sean Manaya. Sean Manaya has no hit the Red Sox. And you're listening to A's Cast, your 24 7 destination for A's baseball. You know, one of the things that you miss are your friends in the game. And one of our good friends of the program is all the way down in North Carolina. And it's the pitching coach for your Oakland Athletics. I've gotten to know him well. We text a lot. We love having him on the program. It's the cerebral side of baseball and the mental side of baseball that he is so good at. But before we talk about that, we got to get into a little history Michael Jordan versus Scott Emerson. It's fabulous. And the pitching coach for your A's joins us now on A's Cast Live. Emo, it's so good to have you on. We miss you. Yeah, I miss you guys. I can't wait to get back to the park. I hope it's going to be soon. When's the last time in your life you spent this much time at home? Well, you know, obviously the off season we spend, you know, three to four months at the house, but, uh, you know, I, I can't remember the last time I had an Easter at the house, uh, spring break. My wife always gets, you know, she, she laughs when I say I never had a spring break, you know, since, you know, seventh grade, uh, uh, junior high baseball, we, we had a tournament over spring break. And, and that just kind of ran through, you go into pro ball in college, you're playing, baseball every spring. So, uh, you know, when I was the pitching coordinator, I try to go out for, you know, 20 to 25 days and then come home for seven days and then go redo the 25 day trip again. But, uh, other than that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit different being at my house now, uh, and seeing the constant weather change, whether it's storms here or, or, or whether it's sunny each and every day. Ken Korak said that there's this plant at his house that has bloomed in Las Vegas during the heat that he's never seen before. And he said to his wife, what is that? And she goes, what happens every single year? You're just never here. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Oh, trees. I mean, I got, you know, living in North Carolina, you know, the, the leaves in the fall, we actually have a fall season, you know, the leaves fall off and then all of a sudden in the spring, they come back. I go, I I didn't realize that tree was that full or our bushes were that, that high. I mean, it's a, it's kind of cool to see. It's a lot different. Who wants baseball season more, you or your wife? Uh, I think my dog does. I, uh, the other day, uh, the wife and I, uh, we had a project of cleaning out the garage. And normally, you know, wherever we go, the dog goes. And this dude, our dog Coco, he slept for three hours. This guy said, thank God I get some peace and quiet for three hours. But. You know, he's getting a lot of walks each and every day. Uh, And I know, I know he would miss me when I leave, but he's probably right now saying, oh, just give me some free time. (laughs) Now, you know how much I respect you as a pitching coach, as a man that I think is 
as good as anybody mentally with the game in baseball. But I do have to say, when I found out some information, it really disappointed me. The fact that here you are, the big left-hander, that you gave up the first hit to a guy that hadn't played baseball since he was 17 years old. How could you be the first guy to give up a hit to a basketball player? Well, well, let's just remember, this was minor league spring training camp. So he'd already been in big league camp and got his hits in big league camp. This is when he got sent down to the minor leagues where I was and got the hit, you know. Uh, well, I arguably uh, gave up a hit to the greatest uh, player of all time in, ba- in the NBA. Maybe I, I consider Michael Jordan one of the top two basketball players ever but the best player ever in the NBA. So uh, there's a little catch to that one. But uh, I consider him probably one of the greatest athletes of all time. This guy's a good golfer, uh, obviously the greatest NBA basketball player of all time. And, uh, you know, he was a pretty good baseball player too now. Uh, I found out that he hit 250 in the second half in double-A, which is is remarkable for, for a guy who hadn't played professional baseball at all in his first full season. He hits 250 in the second half in double-A. Uh, you know, it, for me, you know, I went after him with all fastballs. He got a little base hit to the right side. And then, but, you know, the story doesn't tell you. I, I mixed up all my pitches the next at bat and struck him out. So. What was that like? I mean, he's Michael Jordan. He's just won. I mean, we watched him win the national championship in, in college. He's coming off winning three straight. NBA titles. He's Gatorade. He's Nike. He's Michael Jordan. He's a, he's a, he's a star. I mean, the dream team had already happened and all of a sudden you're now playing against him. What, what were you guys saying back then when you're like, wow, we're playing against Michael Jordan. Well, you know, the, the, the funny thing is, you know, I was working out at my high school in the off season and I was teasing all the guys that uh, that worked out there. We had a lot of pros that worked out at my high school, and obviously the kids on the high school team. I'm like, oh man, I'm I'm a I'm a drop this guy. I'm, I'm gonna bring one up and in and, and get him dirty a little bit and introduce him to, to pro baseball. And, you know, that's kind of your your little bit of a trash talk. And then uh, you know when he got in the box, I was like, nope, nope. This is this is compete time. I'm gonna throw them all fastballs. But, you know, we found out, uh, you know, we heard he was uh, optioned from the big league camp to minor league camp. And we were playing the White Sox that day. And then we heard uh, he got optioned to double A. But I was on the A-ball roster. And the A-ball roster, we were traveling to Ed Smith's uh, stadium uh, to play the White Sox uh, A-ball teams. And so assuming, you know, he was in double A, he was going to travel to our complex with the Orioles. But then it comes to find out they didn't want him on the road because of the security issues of him being Michael Jordan. So he stayed behind and played in the A-ball game. And, um, you know, just an incredible specimen and athlete. A lot of respect for that guy. Yeah, I mean, Sandy Alderson said on this program, he offered him a big league spot with the Oakland A's. And Sandy understands it's about entertainment, and obviously Michael wouldn't have been ready, but they would have offered him to play for the A's, and he would have got one of the 25-man roster spots. But I think Michael was smart enough to know 
if I go straight to the big leagues, I'm going to get embarrassed. And you're going to get embarrassed on a national stage. And I, I just I don't see a guy who was Zach successful on the national stage then showing up and just absolutely failing on the national stage. I just I, that would have been a bad move for him. No, well, if you if you watch the uh, the, the last dance, um, I think Michael Jordan at some point in time would have figured some stuff out. I mean, that's what the greatest athletes in the world do. Uh, this guy would have, uh, you know, probably struggled in the big leagues early if they if they were fortunate to play him enough. He would have figured it out. If you look at his double A numbers and hitting 250 in the second half, I think he would have, you know, maybe not been a, an everyday guy in the big leagues right out of the shoot, obviously. But I think, you know, towards maybe if he was committed to play in a couple more years, maybe by year two or three, this guy could have been playing every day for a few years. Uh, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't hold it against him that he would have been a, a failure immediately. I, I just think that uh, it would have taken him some time. But, you know, this guy's a heck of a golfer and this guy, he would have figured it out. And sometimes you got to learn the job at the highest level. So I know that you're always trying to learn and you're always trying to get better so you can help your pitchers. During this layoff, what have you been doing? What have you been doing a deep dive on to get better? Well, I've done a lot of researching on movements and, and body movements and uh, certain things that, uh, you know, obviously if, if we don't move our bodies correctly, you know, if you have a, a good solid pitching delivery, generally you're going to uh, maximize your velocity and your command. If you have a bad delivery, uh, it's a lot tougher for you to control the baseball. So if we can control the controllables, which could be our delivery, which makes it in return better for us to, to peak out with our velocity, stay healthy, and do what major league pitchers do, and that's being able to command both sides of the plate. So, you know, I, I've, I've looked at a lot of things in, in pitching movements. Um, some have, uh, you know, affirmed to me, you know, what I've already known and I've learned a few things out of it. So, uh, you know, I think it's just a, a, a thing that I've always done, you know, each and every year, you're always looking at certain, uh, people and certain things, whether they're on the internet or within the group that I trust. And, and most of it is, you know, when I'm forming a, a, a pitching plan, I'm taking the organization's data and I'm taking advice from, you know, close-knit people, 10, 15 guys that I really trust about pitching and hitting because I want to hear the hitting side of it. And then I'm formulating my opinions and my game plan. But I think you have to have new eyes also. you got to be able to see different data and say, you know what, how can I incorporate this data into our, our, da our daily plan or how uh, should I just – erase some of this data because there's a lot of data out there but it, it's you know what we what we combined collectively as a group as an organization and what we want to get out of our players and combining the best data that we feel or our data um, is the way that we can help maximize our pitchers so pitching is about messing with the hitters timing right and and we have talked about that in the past but I want to ask you, what's more important in modern day baseball, velocity or command? Well, obviously, you, you got to be able to command the baseball. I mean, if you're throwing 97, 98 and they're not strikes, you can't even pitch. You can't even be on the team. 
You know, I mean, you look at a lot of guys that are in college, they throw 96, 97. They don't pitch much on their team, some of them, because they can't throw strikes. But at the end of the day, they do get drafted because then, you know, we think that, you know, our egos as coaches and player development, we can fix this guy and we want an opportunity to fix a guy who's got a gift and that's a good arm. But that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that he's going to be a good pitcher. I mean, you talked about your golf game off camera a little bit earlier and your approach shots. You know, you can drive for show, but that second approach shot, the good golfers in golf, in my understanding, leave themselves shorter putts than the guys that leave themselves longer putts. So the guys who are more consistent, right, at throwing strikes are going to be better than the guys that just throw hard because you're right. Uh, hitting is timing and pitching is disruption of timing. Big league hitters, they don't care how hard you throw. They really don't. If they get in the box and they see you over the course of time and they know what your velocity is, then that, is, that's, that becomes a mute point. Now it's about, okay, can he throw strikes? Can he put it where it wants? And does he have something to change speeds on me? And does he have a wipeout breaking ball? Once you put those three things in the mind of the hitter, all right, this guy can throw change-ups. This guy's got a nasty breaker. He moves his fastball around. He doesn't just live down and away. You know, I've always heard the term, um, you can lead the horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Well, I guarantee it, the more times you lead that horse to water, that horse is going to start drinking. He's not going to just go, oh, there's water. Uh, you know, I'm dying of thirst. I'm not going to drink this. So he's going to drink it. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, the big league pitchers, you know, have the ability to command the baseball and have a, a, a pitch that can disrupt your timing and wipe you out with a breaking ball. But if you come in and just throw a 98 with no command, or if you just throw 98 in the strike zone, uh, more times than not, you know, one, you're going to might be a reliever if you can't flip lineups and, and use some other pitches. So, you know, I've heard some pitching coaches say, you know, let's just uh, throw your best pitch the most. Uh, and they don't care if it's 60% sliders. Well, you know, everything, you know, may work off the fastball. I, I still believe that everything works off the fastball. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to throw the fastball the most, but when you do, that fastball has to be efficient enough to keep the hitters honest and off your breaking stuff. See, I would have never asked that question years ago, but the reason I did is because the Bob Tewksbury's of the world, they don't exist anymore. Guys that could throw 86 miles an hour and put it everywhere they want. As you mentioned, if you throw 96, you may not even play on your college team, but you're going to get drafted. Velocity has become such a big part of the game. That's why I asked that question because, you know, the day, you know, we used to call guys thumbers. We don't see those guys anymore. Well, you know, there's a, there's a catch-22 going on in the game right now. If, if you look at a, a kid who wants to get drafted, and, you know, some people will say, you know, stop thinking about velocity, stop thinking about velocity. But in reality, if you're a kid and you, you're going to a tryout camp and you're throwing 91, 92, maybe even a 93, the scouts will just say, you know, you're just like anybody else. How can you pitch? And if they look up your pitching numbers and they're not any good, then they, they don't need you. But if you, if you come into this tryout camp and you're throwing sixes and 97 and they look up your numbers and then they go, uh, Ooh, well, 
he hasn't pitched very good, but if we do sign him, do we believe in the Oakland A's player development and, and Gil Patterson and the staff in developing young pitchers? And yes, we do. You know, l- let's give that arm a chance. And that's where the, that's where the, the catch 22 comes in with the velocity because, um, you know, sometimes velocity is hard to teach, you know, and people do think they can teach velocity. Uh, but look, uh, I've talked about uh, the effective velocity enhancement for me. Uh, if, you're, if your nutrition is very important, if you're putting bad gas in a car, don't expect to win that NASCAR race by putting bad gas in the car. So nutrition is number one, in my opinion, for importance, for, for um, not only for, to help you build your strength, but also aid in your recovery. Then you got uh, flexibility. Are you flexible? Can you put yourselves in these high-profile positions that these pitchers have to put themselves in? Crashing the upper half over the lower half. You know, the best pitchers in, in baseball, they get up to speed and force early, and they crash early. You know what I'm saying? That they they have that ability to to throw the brakes on earlier to create velocity. Uh, then you got you know strength and conditioning. Then you got mental toughness. Are you mentally tough? And and then you got, you know, can you sync up your pitching mechanics? If you can just do all this first, you don't need to do the plyo balls or the heavy ball stuff yet. You know, just get yourself to where you're 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 moving functionally correct. Have good movements. And if you don't move good, then you know, it's hard to, you know, give a guy a, a plyo ball or a weighted ball and say, you know what, you don't move very good in your pitching mechanics. Let's give you something heavier, you know. So, you know, a lot of these guys build velocity, in my opinion, the wrong way. There's certain ways you can do it uh, and be safe and efficient, but movement is key. If you, if you don't have good movements generally, now these are all guidelines. You can, uh, I, I think it's Jim Furyk on tour has that big, steep, high swing. And people say, oh, well, you know, you know, he doesn't have a great swing. He's a heck of a golfer. So, you know, all these things are just guidelines that you're looking at. And most of most of it is you're looking at it when you have a non-successful pitcher. How can I get this guy to be successful? What type of changes can we make? You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. You get a guy with a five and a half ERA over and over again. At some point in time, you want to make some changes. And that's why I've talked about Lazardo uh, a lot. You know, what are you going to do with Lazardo? I'm not going to do much with Lazardo until he fails. You know, this guy's got unbelievable stuff and, and hopefully he doesn't fail. But at some point in time, there's going to be some teaching. It's just, you know, subtle teachings now, and, and then when we need to address it, or if we need to address it, then that's when you start making adjustments. But the first thing that you know these guys got to do is they got to eat right, they got to be flexible, and they got to have good functional movements to be able to throw at a high rate of speed, and it, and and that's important. But that doesn't, County, uh, that doesn't mean you're going to be any good either, because then <laughs> then the the whole game of pitching comes in. You know, you, you got your golf game going pretty good now, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, let's let's line up the tee box and the hole with 50, 15,000 people. And let's see how good – and Tiger Woods standing next to you. How good of a golfer are you going to be that day? That's pressure. And, and nobody can quantify it, and so they don't seem to care about it. But and, – and, you know, when I talk to you about uh, – 
you know, pitchers have to get out on that big league field, you know, over the course of the time you're on that tee box with Tiger Woods and 15,000 people lining a hole, you know, you would think within a year and a half or two years or 25, 30 tournaments, you're going to start feeling more confident and not telling that guy 30 yards down, Hey, scoot over, man. I'm afraid I'm going to shank this one. <laughs> you're going to, it's going to be easier for you to breathe and be able to hit the shot. And that's what happens with guys in the big leagues. Well, how come he's not pitching good? Well, he's this guy hasn't gotten to the point where he feels comfortable on a big league field in front of in front of all these fans. So there's a lot of intangibles that go into it. If you can't quantify it, there's still intangibles that happen, and and that's the one thing that that you look at as well. Yeah, I say it all the time on the pre and post game show, and on this show, there are guys that go out to win, and there are guys that are going out to survive. Where are you? The young guys traditionally are going out there just to survive versus the killers who go out there and they go out to win. Let's end on this. You know, so well, we well, I, I got a good, I got a good point for you on here All too. Right. When uh, I was the pitching coordinator and we, we had mini camp for all the new pitchers. I would tell the guys, some of you were drafted because the organization thinks you're really good. Some of you guys were drafted because the organization thinks we can get you to be really good. There's a difference, you know, you know, a lot of guys come and they're the big fish in the small pond. And then all of a sudden they're the, the little fish in the big pond and taking ownership of your career and who you are and identifying, you know, we have to identify, Hey, you're here because you throw 97, 98, but the ultimate goal for you is to throw more strikes and be able to learn how to pitch where this guy we drafted in the first and second round, he's already able to do that. He knows how to do that. So once the pitchers take ownership of their careers and responsibilities of who they are and what they can do, it maximizes their potential, in my opinion, a little bit faster. Let's end on this. I think the good news of a shortened season, and we talked about this at spring training, is now we're not going to have to talk about innings limits with these young pitchers, when you look at Jesus and you look at AJ, you know, we're not going to have to baby. It's just going to be take the ball every five days, right? Well, you know, I think, I think for me, rest and recovery is always important. I never really worry about the innings that are ahead as long as guys are getting their rest and recovery as they're going into each and every outing. You know, if you're overworking a guy in one outing, you may want to cut back in the next outing. But if these guys are, are going through the process of a five-day rotation, uh, we're getting to them uh, to their bullpens fresh. There might be times where we skip bullpens, but every if we're getting guys to the game mound fresh, I think you just you just go with it and and just listen to each other and the communication of how the pitchers are feeling. Obviously, if they're not feeling at their best, that might be a day you cut them back a little bit, either in the bullpen. Or during the game, say, you know, those are the important things. But I want our guys to be out there fresh. I am not cutting this hair until I see you. Well, uh, Tanya, I gave you, I, I tried to give you a bounce pass on my Michael Jordan comment about him being the best NBA player of all time, but one of the top two basketball players, in my opinion, in the history of the world. And you didn't ask me who the best, who the second guy is. You better be saying Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Nope. I'm going to say Len Bias.
Len I got Bias. To, all right, all right. I got to see Len Bias play. I was a huge Terp fan growing up. Uh, I got to see Len Bias play uh, a game in high school, and I followed him at College Park, you know, and uh, Cole Fieldhouse, Lefty Drizel, and I think Len Bias uh, would have been the, the second coming of Michael Jordan. He would have given MJ a great run. It would have been an unbelievable time in the NBA with Lenny Bias and Michael Jordan. What's the number one thing you do in basketball? Uh, I'm a score on you. Uh, who put that <laughs> ball in the hoop more than anybody in the history of the game? Kareem. Uh, who won three straight because the freshman couldn't play? Who won three straight national titles at UCLA? Uh, a different guy, Lou Alcindor. Uh, who won a championship with the Milwaukee Bucks and the Lakers? Two hey, different franchises. Hey, I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to sleep on winners. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, ultimate winner. Uh, I mean, a ton of uh, championship rings. But how about Yogi Berra uh, putting those World Series rings, what, on every finger he's got? And nobody – Yogi. Who, who fought Bruce Lee in the movies? Well, the, the Washington Generals. <laughs> Kareem is the man. I, I yeah. He's one of the only. I'm with you here. Um, I'm with you here. You know, when when I look at athletes and evaluate athletes, I'm I'm looking at a one on one. You know who? That's why I mean the best basketball player. Maybe not a guy who was the best leader on a basketball team. I think you know sometimes you know I look at uh, MVPs in baseball, and there's 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 the MVP who's the most valuable player. But then there's also should be award of the best player because, you know, we've seen guys win the MVP on teams that don't even make the playoffs. And in my opinion, they're, they're probably the best player in the league. But when you come in last place, how valuable really were you to a losing team? So, I mean, there, but we could debate this nonstop. I mean, there's a lot of debate for, for, you know, you love Kareem. I love MJ and Lenny Bias. I love LeBron. I love Kobe. Those were great gifted scorers and players like Kareem. But you're right. You know, that's the beauty of sports and sports talk is we get to, to um, you know, Babe Ruth. This dude not only was a hitter, this guy was a pitcher too. And he doesn't get, you know, I think he's losing his luster as the best player in the history of Major League Baseball. But if you look at it, this guy's a two-way player. This guy's unbelievable. He was a really good pitcher and obviously a really good hitter. So there's my dog. He's got to get on the show. But, uh, uh, you know, if you look at Babe Ruth, man, this guy's a two-way player. That's unbelievable to me. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of great Major League Baseball players. Uh, you know, Barry Bonds, probably the greatest home run hitter of all times, uh, the most feared hitter with all the intentional walks. Uh, and that's the beauty of being able to debate sports. Emo, you're the best. We miss you. Be safe. And hopefully we'll see you soon. And, and I, I want to keep stirring the pot with you. Scott Emerson, one of our favorites, no question about it. You know, the thing with these longer interviews is like we all have so much time on our hands. We just, It's just been great just, you know, 
talking with these guys. And our next guest is an Ivy Leaguer, went to Penn, longtime player, outfielder. And you see him ESPN. He writes for The Athletic. He's a professor at UConn. He's one of the most fascinating guys post-career. Doug Glanville is is truly amazing what he's been doing. And really smart guy. Love having him on the program. Here's my conversation with Doug Glanville. You know, the number one thing that we have been trying to do here with A's Cast Live is bring on familiar voices and, you know, people that uh, we love to talk to and bringing back Doug Glanville from ESPN and The Athletic. Thank you so much for coming on. We always appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. Always have a good time. (laughs) You know, on The Athletic, you guys recently had a Zoom call where you were with uh, retired Afro- African-American players and Ken Rosenthal. And it's, you know, I'm looking at it right now. What was that call like? How, how was the experience? Yeah, that was an amazing opportunity. And, and it actually came together through Ken Rosenthal. He sent me a text message on Saturday and he said, hey, you know, I'm just thinking about uh, getting a group together to sort of talk about what's happening in our country and uh, you know, I thought it'd be great if you know maybe you either be part of this panel or moderate. And uh, you know, certainly a lot of the players I would know or have been former teammates or opponents. So, you know, it started there, and and I kind of expanded the group a little bit, and you know, pretty soon it, it came together quickly. And uh, I, I think part of it was just to share, you know, just start up there like almost as old friends getting together in a reunion setting, but also see if there's something we can. Uh, do through our support of each other to share with the world, share with people that are also trying to make sense of things that are going on. And, and yeah, I mean, we didn't know where it was exactly going to go. We had questions, but we also understood they could take it a lot of different directions. So I had to tap my uh, professor work. I've been teaching the last three years uh, at University of Connecticut most recently. And uh, really, it really helped me figure out how to navigate really you know, certainly tough subject matter that we're facing right now. You know, your post-playing career has become fascinating. Broadcaster, yeah. writer, professor. I, I, I mean, did, is this what you envisioned when you were playing, what you would do when, when you were done playing? Uh, I had no idea what, exactly, what I was going to do afterwards. I mean, that's the thing for most players. You, you end, and it's rarely on your own terms. You're mostly in denial that it's going to end. You're like, well, I still got my slider. I still can do this. And uh, your body's kind of giving way. And I didn't really expect to be retired as quickly as I, as, a, as it turned out. You know, I was with the Yankees in 2005. That was my last spring training. And they released me about a week to go. And I had this elaborate plan to get engaged to my wife. Uh, on the off day after we were in New York, and I never got to New York, so had to replay on that one. So didn't really have a plan, but one thing I knew is I had a good relationship with the media, and I enjoyed you know, talking to them, you know, you know, almost as much or just as much as my teammates. We had Harry Callis for years, so there was so much that I said, "Well, I really enjoy this, and I like writing," and it, it just sort of evolved. My moment was when the Mitchell report broke, exposing all the. PD and steroid use in baseball. And I noticed that a lot of the coverage around it was either naming names or calling for names. And I thought there was a lot of 
other territory to explore. And I was in a good situation as a recently retired player. Uh, I had a lot of information around, uh, you know, playing, uh, working with the Players Association and being part of the executive subcommittee with then executive director Don Fear. So all that seemed to be a perfect storm for me to write. And when I did, it did well. And I kept going to the well, you know, week after week talking about life and baseball. So in some ways, I followed that passion. And when my father passed away in 2002, I found that writing was a way I felt really connected to him. And, and even here, 17, 18 years later, it still feels the same. So I have a lot of motivations behind it. And then when you tie it together, growing up in a town like Teaneck, New Jersey, where diversity was celebrated, it was inclusive. I had friends of all walks of life. And I see sports as the best of what we could accomplish when we work together, no matter where our backgrounds you know, started, then I felt like there's so much I could put together to share that. And, and now as a, as a teacher professor, I, I find it even more exciting to talk to young people because even though I'm teaching, I'm also learning quite a bit from them. Well, it's not a shocker. You're one of those smart guys that graduated from an Ivy League school, so I'm, I'm not shocked at uh, everything you're doing. But uh, uh, the one thing that I, I love about The Athletic and it's kind of like what we're doing here with A's Cast and A's Cast Live is we got to a point where everybody tried to tell us less is more. And that's not the case. And if you do, if you do good work that you can do a deep dive and it can be lengthy, whether it's podcasts, whether it's interviews, whether it's articles and the article. And I, I everybody, I think if you're a sports fan. The Athletic is second to none now in journalism, covering all sports. And the article is a conversation, retired African-American MLB players on race, baseball in America. I just I love how The Athletic allows you guys to, you know, they're not counting your words. They allow you to do what's right. Yeah, it's it's been a, a wonderful experience working with The Athletic. And, you know, it came together. In a way, I actually called, uh, you know, some of the, the founding uh, gentlemen that started it with Alex and, and Paul, and I spoke to them, and they said, well, hey, look, I have these ideas, and it took a minute to come together, and one thing that was very exciting was the chance to work with Jason Stark. You know, that podcast came to life a little bit before it actually came to life. We had been friends for a long time in different capacities, either colleagues or he was covering the Phillies, and and the funny thing about that is when we had our quote-unquote interview for this podcast for Starkville. Uh, they, they called us, and they were all in the room, and, and we were you know across the country. And they were trying to figure out a format, and I said, well, why don't we just do what we do? So we almost acted like we were on a phone call, and Jason and I just started talking. And it just like, we had people cracking up. We had people – because that's what we do. We, we text each other like, did you see that? Did you see that? So it was truly a friendship that turned into a podcast. And uh, they were willing to kind of run with that. And – uh, the fact that we have this kind of old school journalism and this ability to go deeper and the intimacy of having your local team uh, be you know front and center, I, I loved it. And I, I just thought it was a great uh, possibility. So the fact that they're exploring these things in the way they are shows a lot of courage because it's tough to dig into social issues in, in sports. And, you know, you might get to stick to sport, you get some backlash. Uh, it's not going to be always smooth sailing, but they, they still step forward. And, and we ended up doing something I was really proud of and, and very important the other day. So you know about labor negotiations between the union and the owners. And when I hear 
114 games, and then I hear 50 to 60 games. It's a negotiation. It's business. It leads me to believe we meet in the middle 80-82 games. That That's how I would see it, and they're going back and forth. You've been a part of this. How do you think it's going? Yeah, I, I, I think your instincts are correct on that. I, they, you have the middle ground. Now, they might not go straight to the middle. Uh, I hope they cut through the chase and don't go, okay, I'm going to go 93. You're going to go. You know. so, but the negotiations historically have always been a little bit of a cat and mouse game. I mean, the years that we you know, worked on a lot of these policies, 94, 95, of course, was a strike. And 2002 is, a, is another tricky year, the PED policies, things like that. So you go back and forth, and it is truly it's a no, negotiation, and sometimes you want to see who's going to blink. But I, I know the public appetite for that, understandably, is, is, is not that uh, deep or excited, right? We, we're dealing with a lot of things. And if baseball has the, the, the path to be able to play, people want to get it done. You know, you, nobody, we know health and safety is serious. If you have the green light to at least give it a shot, then you don't want to get hung up on you know, economic structures and systems and all these other things. But when I look at the two sides, so to speak, and I, I want to see that it's more partners, uh, that's the that's the one that's at its best. You see, you know, the owners are sort of worried about that bottom line. How much is going to be the outlay for the season? You know that every game played, they they're losing money or at least making less because, you know, they don't have any tickets. There's no gates. There's no concessions. There's no parking. Whereas the players want to make sure, and this has always been you know our story when I was playing, they're worried about the structure, you know, and I and I'm sure they've already moved forward in a better way because they're accepting this prorated instead of this highly discounted, but more of a prorated structure. So you'll make what you would make per game. That's something you can build on. And, and that's something that they can sort of take with them. So I, I see a lot of middle ground there. It might take a little bit, but the sooner they get this done, the more games you can get in, the more you can start getting back to, okay, let's get training camp going and, and get to work. Do you think the players understand how bad it's going to look if the NBA's playing, the NHL's playing, golf's going, NASCAR's going, football's going to training camp, and they're not playing. Do you think the players truly understand how bad that look will be? I think they understand, but I also know that when you get across the table and it's this long, storied, centuries-long battle, and you have had an approach, and it's always been contentious, that yes, you, you may still dig in and not necessarily looking at the big picture in the same way. Uh, players understand what's happening in our, in our country, and I'm sure they all want to play, but they also are afraid of sort of going against something that we were taught when we came up as a player. One was you always pres- preserve the past and protect it, and you also preserve and pr- protect the future. Uh, your time in the present is you know it's sort of dependent on your ability to do those things. So for example, when I was at 94, 95 these years, I had to think about okay, all these players before me, you know, they fought, they went to, on strike, they did things, and they had way less than I did, <laughs> and they were able to fight for a system to create free agency and arbitration and all these things. So I have a duty to them. Then looking forward, you know, we always say don't mess it up. I have I have a job to make sure I preserve something for when the next generation comes. Uh, so that they're able to thrive. So that is that's sort of what you get indoctrinated into as a, as a player. 
And there's no doubt that the players are aware of that, and you see a lot of people speaking out. But they understand that you, they can't win the necessarily the public, uh, you know, sort of the public battle out, out forward. They have to figure out a way to keep it close to vest, work with the owners, and, and get it done. But that would be an absolute horrific look if all these other sports figure it out, get playing, and lap you, and you're sitting there with a canceled season. That would be pretty terrible. <laughs> oh, because baseball's the one sport you can play every day. Yeah. The other sports you can't play. You can't play golf every day. Can't do that. Well, I can play golf every day, but you can't. <laughs> PJ Tour can't play every day. NASCAR, NBA, and, and the relief. You know, we talk about baseball having lost its luster and its its tag as our national pastime in a time where everybody's still stuck at home for the most part. What baseball would do for people every single day, look forward to it, you know, not playing it at seven o'clock at night locally, playing it maybe more like at five o'clock. I mean, you could regain that national pastime by playing every day. Absolutely. I mean, this is a moment. It's an opportunity on so many levels. One is just simply playing, starting a season and having that every day, setting an example you know, being transparent and, and even all the things they're going to learn on health and safety, they share those things. Uh, there's so many opportunities that way. Also, just part of the healing. Is it going to solve everything socially that we have? No, but it's going to give a vision of what's possible when we work as a team. You know, yeah, you know maybe baseball, yes, it may be non-essential, but what is essential for us as a society is to remember that we're a team. We have to kind of be reminded of that whatever, wherever you're coming from. And it's always good to see reinforcements of people of different walks of life playing for a common goal. Uh, I always reference the story of going to spring training every year, and there's players from all over the world, different colors, shades, creeds, whatever, they come together. And at first, everybody has preconceived notions. Everybody has bias. So this guy's from the Dominican, this guy's from you know, Alabama, whatever, you have these ideas. And those ideas go away fairly quickly when it comes to getting on the field and thinking about who you want to have the ball in the ninth inning. They start to change when you see who has the work ethic, who's doing the extra work in the weight room, who's looking out for your family. I mean, that, that just sort of cuts through a lot of stuff. And, and we need more of that because we, we don't seem to have as much access as we need to each other to kind of realize a lot of our preconceived notions and biases are not correct. You know? And baseball, as you said, is every day. So you get reinforced that every day. It's not like, oh, I'll see you next Sunday. No, no, here we go. We got to get after it again. There's our opponent, not each other. It's across, it's across the dugout. And now everybody in baseball will be on the same team because what's at stake. So that's a great opportunity. And baseball would really blow it if they don't get on the field. You know, we'll end on this because I, I, I think you make a great point. For Americans to watch on television and to see men who were born all over the world, working together, playing together, striving for the same thing. You know, we have a very diverse sport. You know, we have guys from Asia. We got guys from down under. We got guys from Latin America. We got guys from all over the world playing in Major League Baseball. At some point, we need to heal. And I think it would be really good for people to turn on the TV and see men born from all over the world playing together. I think that would be good for, for people to see. 100%. It would, be, it would be great for people to see. And just a reminder, and even when you try to say, well, baseball is a game, you realize that there's so much more to it. And that doesn't take away from recognizing the essential 
elements of who's supporting us at this time, whether it's the medical professionals or the grocery stores, there's so much going on that we know people are taking extraordinary risks of their own health and safety to, to bring us certain uh, necessities and comforts and all these things. So that's always have to have that perspective, but then we all still have that opportunity to take a couple of lessons from what is considered non-essential, right? The, the, the optional world that we kind of say, wait a minute, they're reinforcing things that are, are good to aspire to. And, and baseball is one of those sports. And I, I love baseball. I've always loved it since a kid. And one of the elements I love most about playing was meeting people and working with people from all over the world, from all different backgrounds. I watched players evolve that I played with over 10 years. I watched myself evolve and things just opening up my mind to certain things. So uh, I'm hopeful we'll have that opportunity. And, uh, you know, I'll be uh, you know along for the ride if, if baseball figures it out and gets this thing done. So we can really showcase, as you mentioned, how great baseball can be. We're all just smarter after you come on Ace Cast Live. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Hey, you're, you're a fascinating guy. I always appreciate the time. Be safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Appreciate you having me on. Be safe, too. I mean, he's a bright dude. I mean, it is what it is, right? I mean, a, a former baseball player who's now a professor on television and writes for The Athletic. He's an impressive guy. He's one of those Good guys. show today, Cody. Good show today. Uh, thank you. I, I've been wanting to have Doug on again because we had him on a few months ago when he wrote an article about um, his playing days, and it, he was good. And I just remember Doug when he was on ESPN years ago before he left and came back. I always enjoyed him. And Steve Phillips is arguably up there with Jim Bowden as one of the hardest guys to track down as a guest because they're so busy doing different stuff. But I'm glad we're able to get both him and Doug on today along with Emo and Foss and Jesse Rogers. So, so basically the only person in baseball in over just over a year that we have not gotten is Joel Sherman. That's a that's a fact. We have gotten everybody. We've There's had no every major writer from Verducci to Rosenthal to Buster to Kirkchin to Show Bob Phil, freaking Costas. Bob Costas. Oh, we haven't got Al Michaels. He's been the other one that's been, but he's kind of busy uh, usually during the year with uh, different sports. But everyone else you can think of in in. Well, Al hasn't been in baseball in a long time. I didn't even think about Al Michaels in baseball. Right yeah, now. I was just thinking of him more from the 70s World Series and the, the 89 team. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I would say Joel Sherman, just because he has a big following. I did see he was on the uh, our former station the other day, but that's because of a connection he has with one of the hosts that, that I, I'm sure that's how they got him. But he he's always busy, so it's okay. We've But you're right. We've had literally every other major writer, broadcaster, Whoever you want, uh, but I mean, we had players like Mark McGuire. I mean, I know they're former A's, but players, guys who don't really do media, come on. But Joel Sherman, hopefully, we'll we'll get him this year in year two of Ace Cast Live. All right, what do we got going today here on Ace Cast? Well, hold on, let's play the music first. All right, it's time for buying or selling. Sell, sell right now with Chris Townsend on Ace Cast Live. Well, I'd be remiss, first of all, if I didn't mention this. The uh, the I-5 series is over between NorCal and uh, SoCal. Can you guess who, who won? won? Southern California. 
comes back down 3-1. So Northern California, again, uh, this is a knock at the Warriors, blew a 3-1 lead, and they lose to the Southern California team. Guess who the MVP of the series was? Ted Williams. No. Former Oakland A, I just mentioned him a few minutes ago. I don't remember who you just mentioned. That'd be the great Mark McGuire. He was the series MVP after hitting. Big Mac. He had he had four hundred with seven of his eight ex, seven of his eight hits going for extra bases, including five home runs. He drove in eleven runs as well. He just beat out your guy George Brett and Barry Bonds, who also hit five home runs in the series, but had just three hits in his last seventeen at bats over the final five games. The the what, what, what did Ricky do? Uh, they didn't have his stats posted. For what about everything. Joe DiMaggio? Yeah, they just had the guys that were left for MVP. I'd, I'd what, have, did, what, did, what did my guy George Brett do? Uh, George Brett, he didn't, he didn't have a side. He just said that he outpolled him for the for the MVP. But Brett had a real – I remember Brett had a couple triples, a home run. He had a nice little series, as they would say. So Big Mac, the Friend series, of the program, Mark McGuire. Series MVP after being down 3-1. They beat NorCal at Oracle Park on Tuesday, 19-6 to to close out the series. So that's how the I-5 series. Yeah, there's no series. way those pitching staffs are giving up 19 runs. Well, one game, uh, Stu blew it. Stu, Stu gave up a, a walk-off, and then Eck gave up one, I believe, as the, in the next one. So wasn't a couple hey, good hey. days for A's legends. I told you it would go seven, and this was put on by the L.A. Times. The Chronicle just joined it. This was put on by the L.A. Times, and you knew Southern California was going to win it. Because yeah, if you really went player for player, uh, it, it's hard to beat. NorCal, NorCal didn't have the third base or shortstops, but, I mean, the outfield. Come on, your outfield is Ricky Henderson, Joe DiMaggio, Barry Bonds, Frank Robinson. Come on. That's pretty solid. Those are, I mean, I'm pretty sure all those guys had a nice – nice. they had nice runs in their careers. All right, so next on Ace Cast is the Ace 66th win. 66th win of uh, 2019 on August 6th of last year versus the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field, and they beat your guy and former A, Johnny Lesta. Brett Anderson Anderson went six innings long, two runs while striking out three for his 10th win of the year. The A's were powered by Dustin Garneau, remember him, and Steven Piscotti in the 11-4 win over Lester and the Cubs. So yesterday was – there's a couple big things that happened yesterday. One of them was Ken Griffey retiring. We might not be able to get to that today. But this one happened 10 years ago. And there have been a lot of uh, bad or controversial calls in sports. The tuck roll, the fail Mary between the Packers and Seahawks, the 2019 NFC title game between the Rams and Saints, uh, Jeffrey Mayer, Don uh, Denkinger in game six of the 85 World Series, Colorado getting five first downs in 1990 versus Missouri. What about Jim Joyce on, uh, 2000, on June 2nd, 2010? Can you believe it's been 10 years since – the Armando Galarraga imperfect, wow. perfect game versus the Indians. Ten years. Oh, my God. Jason Donald hit a ball to Miguel Cabrera, and when the ball was received by Armando Galarraga covering first base, umpire, first base umpire Jim Joyce called him safe. And he was out. He was out. Buying or selling, Jim Joyce had the worst call in the history of professional sports. Yeah, because he was right there. I mean, he was right on it. That was I, I, I will, That was bad. That was really, really bad. Yeah. And- I mean, he cried. There was a press conference. Uh, I don't think you've ever seen that much said and done after a call than, than that. I mean, he was, he was as an umpire, he was crushed. And everybody felt bad because it wasn't like he was trying to, you know, 
hurt the guy. He just made a bad call. And it was, I mean, it would have changed this kid's life. Uh, yeah, I agree. And Galarraga never really did anything after that in his career. I mean, he was no. always a, uh, I wouldn't say below average because that's, that's, but he wasn't, he wasn't a star by any means. But it, to have that happen on that date, the member the next day they went out and they give Jim Joyce and him exchanged the lineup card and everything and they made out for it. But I still can't believe that was already, that was 10 years ago. Just like it's crazy that for you, the Dallas Braden's perfect game was 10 years ago already too. All right, I'm going to save the rest for Friday. There's a couple good ones in there, including something on Albert Pulhouse. We, I promise we will get to the Trevor Cahill, who's the best, the most highly touted uh, A's right-handed pitcher of the last 20 years, and a couple other things, uh, including Chris Archer and the Pirates. Oh, boy. That, that'll be good after what happened today. All righty. That's it? Yeah, that's it for today. today. Wednesday, so we'll be back on Friday from 1 to 4. And we got a lot to tackle because we didn't get – I mean, we didn't get the – all the stuff we were planning on getting through today. Yeah, well, we're going to have Feldy on Friday to talk about the best uh, A's draft picks. So that'll be good leading up to the draft. We'll have uh, Bob Nightingale. I'm efforting still Rick Monday for, to talk about being the first ever draft pick and uh, a few other people. So the request is in for Mark McGuire also. So we'll see if we get him by, by next Sunday when the ESPN 30 for 30 airs with him and Sosa. Hey, maybe uh, when we come on on Friday, we'll be talking about uh, a labor deal Hopefully, and baseball starting up. Hopefully. And good news for us, the curfew in San Jose has been lifted after uh, tomorrow morning, so no more curfew after tonight. So you can come over again if you want. I can tonight. come over and we can have Wine Wednesday again? Yeah, we can have Wine Wednesday. But, yeah, that's – Or Wine Thursday. Yeah, that's fine. Or, or Wine Friday. I'm a little bit worried about riding my bike over to your place, by the way. Yeah, we can do Tequila <laughs> Thursday. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to A's Cast. We truly appreciate it. Be safe, be well, and we'll be back on Friday here on A's Cast Live. Now back to A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.